Deadwood Soundlab. I saw terrible things. And I did terrible things. So if I'm talking to you, it'll make me sad. It'll make you sad, too. You will think that I am some sort of beast or devil. I am all of these things. But I also have a podcast. You found the real war project. This is Batch 5, Episode 2. We watched the 2015 Netflix film, Beasts of No Nation. This podcast contains explicit language and plot spoilers. Hey, Charles. Oh, hey, Aaron. Charles, uh, this movie was obviously very intense. And um, right before we hit the old record button there, we had a little conversation about content and trigger warnings. And uh, the first thing that I would say is that while this movie does depict the brutalization of children in very explicit ways, um, if you dig a little deeper beneath the really, really powerful visceral components of filmmaking... Um, and also like focus on some of the more apologetic components of filmmaking that we have seen regarding like, um, particularly like rape culture and things like that. It's an interesting example because where like, it's a dramatic movie. It's a violent movie. It's a powerful movie. Um, it definitely centers child soldiers in ways that make all of us deeply uncomfortable, but it does so in, we will say, uh, I think I'm going to say by the end of this movie, in a very stereotypical kind of white frame of victimhood. It does it without any real alternative for any particular audience. Whereas in the other moments, we're literally just blowing by these kinds of comments and talking about stuff that impacts the lives of like lots and lots of women every day, you know, and it's a good example of where the material consequences of media can can come and seem very, very profound and immediate and where we, we should be thoughtful of the consequences of the discourses we're having and things. Um, and yet it's in a weird fit. It's in a weird place because this movie is kind of problematic in a lot of ways that we'll dig into. But I want to ask you, like, what did you think of this movie? How did you pick this movie? We're doing a batch of child soldiers. We watched The Bridge last episode. You had said in the in the chat that you, you knew who the bridge was for and what the bridge was for. It's for Germans. And then you'd said, I don't know who this movie is for or what this movie is for. Is that a good launching point to get you to react to this mm-hmm. film? Um, yeah, this movie, I have complicated thoughts about this movie. As all movies in this uh, for this podcast, I watch them twice in a week. So, like, I watched this once earlier, like, right after we had finished our previous episode, and then I... Watched it like pretty much pretty much right before this. Of course, my second watching is a note taking one, which means it takes sometimes many more hours than uh, than the movie does. And I also had said that much like the characters of this movie, I got very, very stoned before I went into this (laughs) the second time. Um, And and I started thinking Sometimes I look at it very cynically, and then I have all week sitting in a truck delivering mail to just obsessively think about it. This week I listened also to the audiobook, uh-huh. and um, 
Right. This and movie so is based was, on a novel that was the product of a thesis written by someone that was at Harvard, a man born of Nigerian descent who was born in D.C., went to prep school in D.C., educated at Harvard, wrote his thesis while getting his medical degree at the same time, and his thesis was this book. And you listened to that book. You said, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you. Just good context. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so I uh, I also listened to the book. And, um, and so I've been thinking a lot about this movie. Sometimes when I see something, for example, um, later seasons of Sons of Anarchy when it stopped being fun and um, and it started like you were watching violent prison rape or a school shooting or something like that. And then it was never brought up in the story later on or something or in any way that had any consequence to any character. And, yeah. And people would say, wow, that movie so or that show so fucking edgy and that's like so intense. And I would think, yeah, but why did you make me fucking look at that? Yeah. Cri like if you're never going to bring it up later on or if you're not going to address it or if it's then why do I why am I looking at this? Cri and critics so will call that trauma porn. They'll call that mm -hmm. trauma porn. And, and the other thing we, ta we talked about, we'll dig into more later, is like the history of like anti-black trauma porn is especially bad. Right. And so and so as I was watching this the first time, I was, you know, generally um, put off by by some of the stuff I was seeing. But how is that truly any different than any other war thing? Um, I also have to think of it from the point of view of the of the show in where I also say it was like, well, maybe it's depicting some type of reality and you could argue to a certain extent that this does depict a certain type of reality um, mm -hmm. for for some people, for a lot of people, sadly, a very large amount of people. Um, and but but like Die Brücke, like the, the bridge, the bridge was made by a German or an Austrian or whoever for Germans or Austrians or whoever like people from that place about their own culture. And I don't think that this movie is that. So who, who is it for? If it's not by somebody from that, like, I don't know, man. Like it's so, so today I realized that actually who it's for, and I enjoy that this is, that it does exist now is that it is for us, for the sake of this podcast and for this group in which we get to talk about child soldiers. Yes. Because this movie does, as much as we want to say that it exoticizes Af African culture and, and all this other stuff, actually so much of this is so similar and directly parallels our own war culture and, um, and we just don't have the fucking nuts to say it. Correct. One of one of the things that you had mentioned, and in, in, in this hit me square in the face, is like you're thinking about other child soldiers you'd seen, and you thought of Master and Commander, and I did not think of Master and Commander, in spite of having read all of those books, I said, in some cases, twice. And those books talk a lot about how the English um, would just take their kids of 10 to 14, sometimes even younger, and um, just put them on ships. They'd call them the midshipmen, and they just put them on there. And sometimes they'd have incredibly dangerous jobs. And in either case, they're like literally at war. 
And if you watch Master and Commander, it is um, it is it is pined on very obliquely, very obliquely towards the end. We feel a little bad about it, but it valorizes it too. The the the, the children are heroic in that movie in a lot of ways, and you can tell that while we could say that they are being exploited and they have no choice in the vocabulary of this movie, that is not the angle that Master and Commander is coming after. These children are very directly involved in the choices that they're making. They want to work their way up. They want to be in charge of their own ship someday. They want to meet Lord Nelson. They want to beat the French. Like, you get it? Like, that's what they're all about. And And the movie never begs the question how horrifying is this there's no trigger warning there and um you know a kid's arm gets cut off because it gets blown to pieces in a fight that is an incredibly powerful intertextual example of the white gaze and how it will plant victimhood across the entire continent of Africa, a very general broad sweeping application of the term afro pessimism here it will frame a whole continent as like hopeless and exploited and diseased and economically depressed and and all the way down to the, the children who have no choice at all in these cases. And yet, if we do our homework, we'll see that they do have choices. Um, the articles that I've brought, there's so much on this movie. The one I really appreciate, um, Studies in Contemporary Fiction, is the journal, The Child Soldier as a Mercenary, an interpretive recontextualization of Allah is not obliged and beasts of no nation. This is by any et al. Um, this article does an incredible job of explaining how child soldiering works and how in the vocabulary of child soldiers themselves, which this movie vaguely accomplishes, if we center the vocabulary of child soldiers themselves, they're going to tell you that they fight for the same reasons every soldier fights. They want food. They want comfort. They want honor. They want glory. They want to be a leader. They want to, to, to set a good example. They want to be a man. They definitely want to be a man. That's a big part of it. And the opening quotation that Charles reads to you is this character telling us that. Amy, she thinks that my not speaking is because I can't be explaining myself like baby. But I am not like baby. I am like old man. And she's like small girl. Because I am fighting in war. And she's not even knowing what war is. So if I'm talking to you, it will make me sad. And it should make you too sad. I just want to be happy in this life. If I'm telling this to you, you'll think that I'm some sort of beast or devil. But I'm all of this thing. But I also have a mother. Father, brother and sister, once, they loved me. The character tells us that in this movie, but the voicing of the movie and the music of the movie and the, the gaze, we say, of the movie makes the same language a victimage trope. 
And the ethnography itself apparently does and doesn't do this in a lot of ways. It's just an incredible article that really digs deep into the histories of this particular question, into the background book that you had read. The other article I want to cite is by Sandig. It's called Beasts of No Nation, Afro-Pessimism, and the Rationality of Warfare in Africa. Um, this came out in 2019. There it is. The Interplay Between Political Theory and Movies is the name of the journal I could not find. And this article um, kind of says that Beasts of No Nation does and does not do the Afro-Pessimism thing. We're going to talk about the plot in two seconds, I promise y'all. But here's the whole point, is that it does not center white saviors, unless we include the audience, and Charles and I will. Um, it centers white saviors in their feelings of viewing the movie. But, um, it, so it doesn't include white saviors. It doesn't include some of the other, it doesn't, like, um, it doesn't specify an African nation. And so it isn't specifically, because it does not say where it is based, it kind of avoids Afro-pessimism. But then on the very next page, they say it actually also links to Afro-pessimism in this way. Because the point is Afro-pessimism must be linking hopelessness and all of these other things to the continent. And by not telling us where it is based, the movie arguably does not do this. But the, then the article, like, it's in Africa. Like, this movie is doing everything it can to tell us that it is in Africa. And on the coast. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. Like, and there so, is gold like, there. Yeah. I mean, okay. and, and, and now the article is going to say by not specifying, they potentially say it could be any, you know, Africa, the continent, you know, Charles is specifying on the coast and there's gold there. And if you know some history, you might know what nation or nations we could be talking about. But it's about. like you have to dig so hard for it. You know, that's exactly. And that's and we've talked a lot about how bad it is to reflect the story and to make the audience dig for the truth. Sorry, I'm holding the mic, but go ahead, Charles. <laughs> to a certain extent, I like to I like to dig for it. But for a movie like this. I don't think a lot of people are going to want to watch this fucking two times, you know, or do I... the homework right? or do the reading. The most of the audience heard me say those articles and that's all that's ever going to happen there. Not to call people out, but let's be honest. <laughs> mm hmm. Mm hmm. Eli, like, <laughs> um, and so, um, and so this, this, it, it's just, how do you tell the story? And it's hard. I, I'm going to wonder, you know, it's like it's sometimes maybe you're just going to have to, as a storyteller, take a hit, you know, like, fuck, man, I can't be I'm simultaneously Afro pessimistic and 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 whatever. At the same time, it's like it's like the, the I, I feel like sometimes despite all of your best intentions, it's all messed up. But at the same time. My God, as a movie that exists in a clump of movies making comments, it's like it only should exist like as a double, triple feature or something, because then you can have this conversation then about children being manipulated into into doing war and people being manipulated into doing war in general because the movie does speak a lot about that and the book kind of does speak a lot about that and it does a good job but at the same time sometimes in the back of your head you're just thinking is this just some smarty pants fucking <laughs> thinking about how fucking good this metaphor is in his in his nice apartment yeah 
Yeah, we never have the moment and, you know, uh, it was Eli or you that said in Master and Commander where they're like, you have to put a machete in this French person's head if you want to be like Lord Nelson. Like, you know, it's like that th- th- this movie is trying to be very smart and it is very smart in a lot of ways. We'll touch on this more at the end, I hope, but I'm going to throw one more thing at the front before I ask you what this movie is about so people can know. So Amy Madison has a very important book called Critical Ethnography, Method, Ethics, and Performance. She references a guy named Dwight Conkergood. They're writing about something called ethnography, which is how do you situate yourself as a researcher among a people that you are not a part of to study them in order to make claims about them. This is very precarious and important research in the humanities. It is um, inherently subjective and yet inherently objective if we do positionality correctly. So when you ask this question and you say, maybe I have to like take a hit or whatever, one of the things I really emphasize to people is that there is in fact an entire discipline about how to do this work. And this podcast may not be the place to dig into this. Maybe at the end of this, we can talk a little more about it. Um, We might mention it throughout. But this book's really important because what it does is it basically uses a term called positionality to describe your relationship with what it is you're going to study. And that's very complex. It's frequently very, very complex with everyone. And it does take some reading. But um, Dwight Conkergood gives us a really good little chart that identifies four ripoffs in one alternative. You can be a custodian. You can be an enthusiast. You can be the curator. You can be the skeptic. Those are the ripoffs. Custodian, enthusiast, curator. I think this movie is a curator or a skeptic. The alternative he calls genuine dialogical performance. We'll talk about what that means. It's hard. This movie doesn't accomplish it, I don't think. But it does do a whole lot of really powerful things. I'll agree with you on that in terms of what you just said. Um, you want to briefly describe the plot for our audience that hasn't seen it? Yeah. And they're like, I guess let me, let me no just summarize really quick my, my weird feeling is that is that there is really good stuff in here that is less problematic the more you go incredibly digging for it, maybe mm-hmm. looking for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it takes a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And and the second part of it is that maybe maybe the people who shouldn't be telling us or examining what might be remotely fucked up in Africa, if there's anything there, I mean, there's a lot of problems. Maybe they shouldn't be a bunch of centrist libs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like right. they aren't going to give you, they're not going to really be able to give you the lens perhaps to look through. What we're going to ask is for those centrist libs to at least acknowledge that the lens that they give is going to be predicated on a whole lot of like subjective problems. And the inherent issue is that when you point that out, they tend to get mad. This is called fragility. They tend to deny it. That's called fragility. And then a bunch of people defend them because it sounds so reasonable because fragility is so freaking reasonable. And then we're like, this is all worse. This is all making it worse. Yeah, Whereas, getting upset of these. Yeah. Getting upset about it make, makes it worse. It's it's mm-hmm. fine. It's fine. Your intentions are are fine. And it's great that this is the first, like, one of the first movies, I think, in this particular fucking gruesome genre of yeah. child soldiers in Africa, I guess, which is... Yeah. Um, but... But yeah, it, it would it would be great to see a larger conversation. Like, I would love to see a Pulp Fiction type movie where it's like jumping through time. Like, let me see the little fucking kid in the Civil War, too, who's pretty much right. exactly indoctrinated like this motherfucker in this movie. Right. 
and then with a kid in the KKK right now that's running around with his AR, you know, the dude like, like running out with his gun to uh, to to help restore peace at a fucking exactly right. Yep. Mm-hmm. exactly right and i think that um madison's book opens with a with a, talking about a documentary and about the intentions of the filmmaker and the whole point is if you're this you know centrist lib you can make this research but you've got to be critical about yourself yeah. you got to own that and um and good intentions do not isolate you or the, the world from the consequences of your actions fans of the show have heard me say if i kick you in the face in a mosh pit whether I intended to do that matters, but not very much. Like you got kicked in the face. That's what happens. And so it's like, yeah, this movie is incredibly powerful, just not critical at all. And I think that that guts it of a lot of its potential. It's about a young boy who's like maybe 10. His name is a goo. Um, he, we, we open with him playing and just having a kid time and he witnesses his father and family get killed and he flees town, gets picked up by a militia becomes a soldier does a whole bunch of horrifying things until the militia essentially disbands is this movie and then he ends up in a un care group well, yeah that's, that's the synopsis 25 minutes in so there we yeah. go <laughs> what better than we usually do but what i will say is it's more than that this movie made me think of the thin red line a lot oh my god yes in terms of the mm-hmm. voiceover and the soundtrack it made me think of another problematic movie that does a lot of the same on a non-critical kind of storytelling, a film called Beasts mm-hmm. of a Southern Wild. This is Beasts of No Nation. Beasts of a Southern Wild, both movies using the word beasts here, riffing on uh, Califel's notion of monstrification, particularly of blackness in this case. Um, this movie but, is wait, so wait. beautiful. Well, like, hold on. It's... Let's go also and say that, uh, to continue my thesis, that this movie was specifically made for this podcast because it also <laughs> intertextually goes back to Beast of War, which right. is talking about the tank, <laughs> not just the tank, but the people willing to wage cruel war. I mean, because without people inside the tank. You're right. Yeah, it's the it's the tank captain. And you asked for the tank captain story. So we went looking through the movies that we have watched. This movie makes me think of glory a lot, although I do not think it glorifies war. This movie does not do that. And that's pretty cool. This movie does not make me want to enlist. That's pretty cool. Uh, But it does make me think of glory a lot in terms of how beautiful it is. And glory had child soldiers, we said. And then you said Beast of War has uh, or I had pointed it out. And you said we wanted the, the voice drop. The Beast of War has this story from the tank commander. You think for yourself. When I was eight years old, defending Stalingrad, I didn't think for myself. When the motherland asked for our lives, we gave. My father didn't think of himself, he gave. My mother didn't think of herself, she gave. My brother didn't think of himself, he gave. My comrades tied a rope around my waist and and lowered me on top of Nazi tanks. I stuffed Molotovs under, under turret and cannon and... And it pulled me up again. Eight years old. They called me Tank Boy. I took a lot of Nazi tanks. A lot. And over the years, I've learned to smuggle trade. And keeping in mind, he's the person that's driving the tank around doing the killing. Like the movie makes the tank the monster, but you're right. He's the beast of war. Like he's the one telling it to do the atrocities. Yeah. Interesting. 
Um, and Same mechanism. War destroys the destroys the child and turns them into a monster. And and beast of not war. Not in glory, though. So so it's like <laughs> not in glory and not in um, master and commander. Yeah. Sorry. And the other thing I would say about beast of war is like, well, beast of war has its own problems, obviously, with representation and everything Lots. like that. You know, and we it's have like a whole maybe, episode about that, right? And it's like maybe it gets some points or whatever, or, or I give it I give it some slack because it's older. You know, like it's right. And and it's made, I think, for Americans. I think, you know, mm. like Beast of War is is for people to say, oh, we shouldn't become like the Nazis or we shouldn't let we shouldn't let the waging of war or this weird pursuit of war make us ever tolerant of these cruelties. And that that's like the message of the movie. Maybe it uses it more as like their war metaphorically or whatever. And that's problematic mm-hmm. in its own sense. But but we were stupider back then. We should be so right. much smarter now. Right. And the movie does a lot of very smart things, but at the same time, then you have to be a fucking film nerd following this podcast, really breaking down <laughs> movies to be like, oh, that is kind of smart and interesting. Right. Because otherwise, well, we then said- you say, isn't that sad what happens in Africa and those poor kids... We should do something about it. And it's like, yeah, okay, well, I guess topple capitalism. I don't know. Like, yeah, exactly. Get that. to post scarcity, <laughs> right? Like, it's. Could we, could we have a conversation about the ways that scarcity is manufactured at the expense of, like, <laughs> oh, no, sorry, that movie's not nearly as interesting. Um, in Glory, they literally kill a medal. Like, there's a Medal of Honor winner that lived through a battle, and the movie kills them. And we're like, it's bad that they make you have to dig to find that. That's weird. And that's bad and it seems like they're burying fundamental parts of the story even though we feel good and get a movie we all enjoy this movie does that in a lot of really weird ways and it came out in 2015 which is fairly recent it's based on a thesis written in 2004 or 5 which this is worth saying is the same it's the same time that madison's book came out so this book here that's so important about ethnography and how to do ethnography is coming out at about the same time this thesis is being written and this thesis from what i can gather based on what i've read about it is not very positional which explains why this book is necessary and why it's been such a big deal what do you mean by positional um i know but some of our listeners might not know I know. And the question is, how much do we want to spend on that versus the movie itself? But let's touch on it because this is a good place to touch on it. It's like that when when we talk about positional, like think about this for a minute. Think about the grid I gave you. You can be a custodian, an enthusiast, a skeptic, or a curator. You have to imagine an XY grid here. This is going to be a little tricky. The, the further to the left you go, the more detached you are. The further to the right you go, the more committed you are. The further up you go, it's more about who you are as an identity versus the further down you go, it's about difference. So in the lower right corner, I know this is hard for everyone, but I'll try to explain it. The curator's exhibitionism is someone who is very committed, but very different from the people they are talking about. Thus, they are kind of a curator. They're outside, they're separate from, but very committed. And and Conquer Good says this is a kind of exhibitionism. It's a kind of sensationalism. It's a kind of tourism. And that's what this movie feels like. If you are committed, but similar to the people you are talking about, this is the enthusiast's infatuation. You've been there once or twice 
twice. This individual uh, who wrote this movie, who wrote the book, was born in or was born to parents from Nigeria and has been there a few times. But in the interviews that I can find, they never grew up there. They never lived there. They were definitely never a child soldier. They're not in genuine conversation. They're not positioned in genuine conversation, but they are similar to these people. They are very similar to these people in a lot of ways, and they're very committed. So they could also be a kind of enthusiast who is infatuated is where we would position them. You can be a custodian ripping stuff off. This is someone who is very similar to something, but very detached. This is someone who like lives in the community, but doesn't give a shit about the politics. They're just going to give the, the world whatever they want. And the last one is a skeptic. This is someone who is very different from and very detached. The people who, as soon as they hear the thing, they're like, oh, I don't fucking care. And they just punch out. That's the skeptics cop out. We have a place for them too. They exist on this chart. You're going to be somewhere on this chart. And if you are an enthusiast and you are infatuated, you can tell us that story if you tell us that this is who you are. Conquer Good does not create this chart to stop people from telling stories. Madison does not write this book to stop people from telling stories. We want you to be honest about who you are. You cannot create the narrative of a child soldier if you're not either a child soldier yourself or in what Conquer Good would call genuine dialogue, dialogical performance every day you live with and exist with these people. That's the best positioned place to tell the story. Having actual child soldiers tell their story the way they want it told, they're the best positioned people to tell the story, we would say. When it comes to like resources, they're very poor positioned capitalism doesn't give them a fucking megaphone you get it and that's where neoliberalism and, and liberals like centralism comes in but the point is what does position mean you're on this grid somewhere you're on this grid for every story you pick and all you got to do is own that all you have to do is just own that be critical of it tell us who, who you are where you're coming from and you don't have to do that in a monologue you can do that in creative ways in storytelling ways that don't necessarily distort or destroy the drama it's just honest and the last thing i will say is that madison makes a very good point this gives us subjectivity and objectivity at the same time you cannot be in genuine dialogue with yourself you cannot be and so you have to you have to include a community in here if you're not telling the story right the community will tell you that and that is where you are objective but it also includes subjectivity because you're a person and that person is going to have a bias. That person is going to have all of these background problems. And we just have to own who we are. And so the best form of storytelling gives us both of these things, not mere objectivity, but objectivity per the subjective, which is the storytelling mode. I know that's a lot and we can cut it down, but there's your answer. All right. So this movie is coming out in 2015. This episode mm -hmm. is coming out in early 2022. Um, right. so not very, this isn't a very old movie, but politically this movie came out 1000 years ago, <laughs> a million um, miles away in 2015, <laughs> we were still really enjoying Hamilton, um, without having it to put a, uh, an asterisk on there. And we were really patting ourselves on the back somewhat for Obama. <laughs> we were saying, well, he's pretty good, even though. All of the drone strikes. Oh my God, this feels weird. <laughs> and so that kind of makes this movie sort of make some sense. Yeah, <laughs> it sure does, Charles. You, when you put it like that, it sure does. <laughs> um, it's just that we have had to rapidly look at ourselves inwardly. And, um, yeah. and some of us have, have rapidly 
left of leftistized or whatever, you know, like just, <laughs> you know, we thought we wanted more breaks or something. And another side um, went insane. And um, yeah. And so anyway, that brings us to Beasts of No Nation. 2015, Carrie Joji Fukunaga. Um, the director, right. This guy also did um, True Detective. I believe mm-hmm. he's on an episode of Bananas for Bonanza, um, which is a great podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was actually surprisingly really funny. Apparently, I'd listened to it and said and requested to be on the show. Huh. Um, I watched yeah. a few interviews and it seems interesting. Seems yeah. like a very interesting person. Yeah, Interesting, um, intelligent person. But, you know, it's like it sometimes whatever <sighs> young boys good intentions don't isolate you or the world from the consequences of your actions sorry mm-hmm. but god bless it he tried because you know i'm just making this podcast talking about it i haven't made a movie it's easy sometimes <laughs> to do the thing and sometimes it's much harder to um to try to sure. bring all of those intentions onto the screen we're still chasing that high of uh of some of the other movies here Young yeah. boys play with a gutted TV screen. They perform shows in an attempt to sell the TV. So they're going to, uh, these are like very pretty young boys. They're like 10-ish. Um, they are going around to different soldiers that are in the uh, that are in their, their town, and they're putting on imagination TV, like little skits and stuff, in an attempt to get money. Um, and they they explain in voiceover that school is out because of the war and that they live in a buffer zone guarded by Nigerian troops. Yeah. Yeah, the movie opens basically on the sound of children's voices and then footsteps um, kind of in the dirt and on the ground. Um, We've talked a lot about the kind of sounds of feet in dirt. I was editing The Hidden Fortress. We talk about it a lot there, uh, a bunch of other episodes. Um you know good affective example of situating this movie in proximity with children in proximity with nature in proximity with like motion and feet on ground moving around it's really cute how they go and they hide behind the tv and when the person changes the tv they kind of change the story and so they do like a soap opera hey real fast please i love you i don't love you oh why because you're not handsome. Go! Oh, please, I bet. Don't follow me, go! And then they do, you know, all of these other different kind of shows. Dance, dance, dance! Kung Fu, Kung Fu! And I found myself thinking they do, they call it imagination TV, and I use the phrase a lot, our imagination has been colonized, and this is kind of a fun example, because it's like, what what is on TV? Well, it's going to be a teledrama, so it's going to be, it's going to look like a soap opera, and now the kids put themselves in those kinds of positions and start their imagination from there, and you can imagine, oh, it's a soccer match, oh, and now they're going to, you get it, and it's like, it's interesting, it's a good example. We meet the parents, mom is, um is cooking and very nice and she is also teaching the uh the child how to read a goo um dad mm-hmm. is an actual literal teacher he mm-hmm. is um he teaches in a school um and we also see some big brother and little brother hijinks it's really cute mm-hmm. it's really cute like the 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 just the relationships between the children in this movie are really powerful 
like you, you get a real sense of like you know brotherhood from the two in the beginning when we get to Stryka, the relationship between Agu and Stryka is just really moving to me. It's so complex. It's so interesting um, and very subtle just with just based on the, the, the things that they do, little pranks um, and responses to pranks. I don't know. I don't know. I would, um, you know, much like Deliverance, um, I would have watched a movie where nothing went wrong because I was yeah. enjoying this stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I just would have liked to have seen some bros have a nice canoe ride with each other. Um, well, and it does. I mean, it, it, it. But there, and that's your Afro pessimism lens, right? Is that it's like, like we only get so many movies about Africa, and the ones that we get are so like stereotypical, and it's not like there aren't other stories to be told. <laughs> right. Right. That that is, you know, yeah. that that's that's. And if the we're making it, it up anyway, if we're making it up anyway, why not just make up that version of the movie? <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the articles, um, I think it was the um, Sandig article, talks about how a lot of the kind of civil war contexts that these movies turn to um, are movie are wars that ended in like the seventies, eighties, and nineties. 2015 and we can talk about Boko Haram and like what they're up to and everything and yeah there's like examples of atrocity going on all over the world but when we tell these kinds of stories about the continent um we're evoking those kinds of wars from like you know 40 years ago not that this is where the movie takes place it's just that it's where the actor is from it's on the coast and it has gold was Ghana ever in a civil war like this um you know it's just <laughs> This is a question for better positioned people than myself to say, which war is this? (laughs) See how that works right there. (laughs) So positionality at work for you. (laughs) They go to church and um, and he says that you can always ask God for an answer. This was something also in the book. Lots of uh, lots of people talking about religion and um, and and questioning God and whatnot and i always feel bad for people in war movies talking about god they say that there is yeah. no atheists in the foxhole and it's like well i don't know i became an atheist pretty fucking quick i feel like watching <laughs> a missile go down the road wondering what the fuck was i a good catholic for yeah we've seen television culture and now we're seeing like religious culture here. When we talk about dominator culture, we say it is explicitly a product of like white supremacy, the so-called West. These are two really good examples of the cultures that we're talking about. I think it is one thing to say that um, like, you know, children get exploited into wars and things, but it is the culture that does this. And if we're looking at this media and this culture, then we're setting up the kind of background that we need for the youngest boys in the world to think that war is how they get glory, how they get leadership, how they do all of that. This movie's not making that argument, but if you read between the lines, it's all right there. Um, I feel like it does criticize that reality. The religious reality? No, that the movie criticizes the reality that that war is essentially boiled down to trying to better your position in life and getting some sort of glory. Yeah. I I mean, I I think to some extent it does do that. Again, I I really like the Sandig article because the Sandig article is a great example of criticism that's like, it's complicated. This movie does a few good things and a, a few things that are very predictable. Um. And that's, a again, like, you're right. This movie does not glorify war. This movie makes war look like a power grab. There's no noble soldier in this war, not one. And we want, and we see, if we saw Agu as a little bit less of a victim, 
it would, I mean, in spite of everything that happens to him, as someone who is still making choices, if the movie landed on his choices, it would avoid that. We see the kids. They are, along with the brother, they are creating a roadblock, cutting a uh, branch down to stop cars so that they can hustle refugees. Yeah. Um, yep, and then they get yelled at by an old woman who threatens them with a curse. The old uh, uh, witch lady. Why are children yeah. so disrespectful, she says. May the devil bless you, crazy old lady. Um, the witch woman... Um, apparently has um, some land issues. We learned that um, with the family. So the family is having dinner and they're, um, they're having a little laugh over some burps. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then they're like, Hey, we saw that weird, crazy witch lady. And she said that um, she said that she hates us because we evicted her off of her land. And the guy's like, no, we've had this land for a really long time since before your grandfather and we're giving the mm-hmm. land to the refugees, and I guess she didn't want to be on it. Something's going on. They don't go into it. Yeah. That's a different movie. It's weird because they definitely center it twice, here in a kind of awkward way and later in a way that literally ends up killing all of Agu's family in a very like predictable move of anti-black misogyny. We're going to make this black witch the reason that they all die. Um it, but they don't give us any of that background. We just kind of like hear it as though it's like part of the tapestry there, right? Now, it's weird because this, I knew you were going to say this, so I had Eli bring up an article about how an old black witch actually ruined Africa. It, she, it's, look- she's the one. <laughs> she's the, she did it. Yep, it was definitely not years of you know settler colonial and colonialist genocide, white supremacist genocide. They have posters all over town. These billboards. Just one old woman did all of that. Can you believe it? <laughs> yeah. I can, because this is what the media tends to do, is say that that tends to be how it boils down. They've got billboards like Fight No More, Cooperation Builds Our Nation, and they talk about the war just beyond the boundaries. Very evocative of the bridge here. I liked how the war was just past the boundary of the town. How we get we get a war story from the, the, the confines of the people that are huddling away from the conflict. Really powerful form of storytelling. Did you notice the cooperation builds our nation mural was all white people in there? <laughs> no, but that's smart and plausible <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, Afro pessimistic and yeah. <laughs> um. So, uh, this we also have um the dad getting mad at Agu because we also learned that the television that they were uh, selling was their own television and they just ripped all the guts out of it. Um, the yeah. power goes out. And then um, and then we get a scene where they're pumping water and Big Brother talks about girls. So we get some more bonding with them. Yeah, Big Brother's narrative is basically he wants to have sex. Agu's narrative is he's just having a good time. The sister and the mom are basically doing school and cooking things. The dad is like a teacher and um, talking to other men about like the war effort and businessy things. I did really like when the, the student gets the thing wrong in class and the dad just goes, looks to the other class and says, shame him. Agu, where do lions live? In the zoo. Shame him. Shame. Who can tell me where lions <laughs> class all just looks at him and like shames him. I'm like, oh gosh, I wish we could be so explicit with our grading. Just be like, that's incorrect. Everyone shame this person. For <laughs> Ring the bell. Yeah. <laughs> we get a radio broadcast about the junta. The media, the voices of the media. We talk about that a lot in the Alien Movie Project, how the voice of the media is going to frame the appearance of the alien and hear the appearance of the war. 
parties further consolidating their control of the government in the wake of the recent military coup. Lieutenant General Sanganya, commander-in-chief of the armed forces responsible for the junta, stated in a recent press conference that it was his intention to rid the southern region. Sometimes it's just easy storytelling. Quick, easy, and plausible. Isn't it crazy how the television just is always concluding a... uh, a news story <laughs> with a quick summary about the thing that the movie's about. Oh, it's shit. way more plausible than the kid walking in and the dad being like, so anyway, the military junta is... <laughs> like, <laughs> I know this, Dad. We see more military convoys, and then we have a town meeting, and they say at the town yeah. meeting that the women and children must go, they must evacuate. And then they, uh, the, the elders say, those who call themselves men will stay and fight. That recruits you. Yeah, the 11.40 mark, I have media, 12.30, I have trucks, and uh, the sound of trucks is the arrival of the war. This moment in the church is so so powerful. It's so short. They have so little time. Everyone has to make up their mind. What are they going to do? There's one dude that's like, we are just going to get crushed between two sides here. Like, we have to get out. And I'm like, hear that man. I'm like standing there pointing at him emphatically and being like, listen to this person. Um, but they essentially decide that the women and children are going to leave and the men are going to stay to try to defend the town, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they have it. personal property and it's um, foolish. It's so bizarre because it's like, again, this thing, I've been saying this throughout the show. There's there's this dark part of the world where you're minding your own business and the thing that calls itself as an army is going to show up and do whatever it wants and you don't get to resist it. When they say that they're trying to stop looters, the junta is like, oh, so you're calling us looters? Like, oh, like there's no language that you get to use. You're not, you cannot defend your town. You cannot protect your town. Your town is collateral damage and so are you unless you get out of there. Question, and this might not be answerable, due to the nature of this story at all. They, the guys that did the killing in the town, they kept saying we're the government forces. Have, is, did they take over after a coup? Is that what we're just assuming after this point? Who is Idris Elba's? I thought they were the junta. Like, what's going on here? No. Never clarified. It's, well, it's, they wouldn't, right? Because it's a made-up conflict. But Right, but it's, it is somewhat clarified. And I definitely have timestamps for it later on. So okay, mm-hmm. yeah, because okay. we'll probably want to drop a lot of this in here. But but yeah, there is there is lost. a junta that is that that is like a coup that is also allied with a different like um, rebel group, and then we have the main rebel group of the movie that is that is fighting back. The NDF is Idris Elba's group, mm-hmm. correct? Yep. That's the NDF. And here it is. It's like like groups are going to go around calling themselves the government. They're going to go around calling themselves a president. They're going to go around calling themselves a commandant and all sorts of nonsense. And, and they're going to take over radio stations to do that. They're going to take over television stations to do that because the, the vocabulary of authority is – and you'll see this in coups. You'll see this in those kinds of in, – in rebellions, those kinds of contexts. Some dude named George Washington suddenly calling himself a general, like whatever. You get it? It's like we, we just anoint ourselves and that creates the confusion. And on the one hand, it's a really great example of this because it's like how the hell do you know what the fuck's going on and how the hell do you know who's who? Um, and on the and other why hand, would you that, care as a little kid? 
That's the other thing well, about it is that it's very smart so, because because as a movie about a young kid that's being manipulated into war, they say all these things. They they have these speeches about about taking their land back or whatever, and it's like, what the fuck do I care? I don't know who this guy is. I don't know what any of this stuff means. And me as the audience, it's like, yeah, I don't kind of understand any of this. I just got here. I'm not it on a side. It like literally to the point that the kids don't know that they're living on stolen land or maybe living on stolen land or who knows whose land they're living on. The kids don't know. But the article, the, 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 any article that uh, contemporary studies, uh, studies in contemporary fiction makes a really good point that I have not gotten to make because there's so many other things that we've been talking about. The, the, and this isn't quite what you're saying, but I want to put it in here. The notion of children as innocence and disconnected is like obviously a super profound luxury and really weird. The, the British, like again, with their midshipmen, never thought of their kids that way. If their kid wasn't going on a ship to be a soldier, they were doing work all the goddamn time because if you don't, we're going to starve. And what that means is if your kid's running around playing games and doing stuff, then they're just lazy. They're just wasteful. They're totally disrespectful. Like they're not doing any of the stuff. And this is a culture that like frames young people becoming soldiers pretty readily and and they will have very high and mighty feelings about why they're fighting and what they're fighting for they'll have notions of patriotism they'll have notions of politics the article is like if you talk to actual child soldiers like 60 percent of them are like it's about the land and the politics and the right general and the right president and they will. They'll know that stuff if the culture raises them in a way that says you're a grown up. But in our culture, and I'm looking at my kid thinking about this, we tend to set our kids as like just totally incapable of making choices, totally incapable of doing anything. And so we just give them playtime and that's all they ever do. And we protect this thing called innocence. But their playtime is saturated with with our national defense culture. Right. Yeah. Then so, I watch a bunch of so Star Wars it's like while they <laughs> while they might not be while they might not be getting indoctrinated in the way that the kids in the bridge were, or yeah. how when the kid yeah. was getting, um, you know, going through his basic training in this movie, yeah, the kids in America do get indoctrinated in their own subtle way. I was having this dark conversation with Kate about how, in my opinion, it's way more honest to go the other way, to be like, no, you will be a soldier. You will be a soldier, Billy. You're going to pick up your gun and be a soldier because we're a soldiering community. Instead, what we do is we tell them that everything is innocent and fun. And what they watch is like Marvel and fighting and Star Wars and fighting and shooting and fighting. And then they, they enlist and they don't know anything at all. Does it just seem not seem like the same because we grew up that way? Like, I think it, yeah, like our cult, I've been saying it throughout this project. Our culture is deeply involved in making a soldier out of everybody. That's settler colonialist empire building 101. And it, it has to be smarter than I believe it or I don't believe it. It's like it, it's taught through the media in a whole lot of ways. Yeah, Eli, you want to clarify that? I mean, I'm just, you know, thinking out loud here. How is, you know, the Nazis blood and sand or blood and soil any different than our manifest destiny in that regard, where it's like, we deserve this land, we're going to take it, where in Germany, it's like, we deserve this land, it is our land, you're going to die yeah. for it. That's the only right. real difference here is that they specifically said, you die for this for the fatherland or whatever. Right. But manifest destiny, that's the same joy, right? 
it's it, it it's it's a different form of settler colonialism and we've said that we're not the only brand of settler colonialism but we are by far the most successful version of it and the key differences are we won the war and they got turned into the bad guy in indiana jones movies and we're the good guy in indiana jones movies going out and determining what does and doesn't belong in a museum <laughs> it's like that looks a lot like uh the fatherland all over the world except we're not calling it that and i think it's interesting because in the bridge last movie they were honest they were honest. They're like, you are in the Hitler youth. These, This is what they believe. And the parents are just hearing it from the kids well, they to their faces. Right. I don't and, think that... And, and this, mm. like, yeah, the, the context is the notion of childhood innocence is fairly contemporary. It's not biologically justified. It's um, commercially very convenient. It sells so many toys. Uh, that's it. And we should make sure that when we frame the notion of whether children do or don't know things about politics or war, that we're remembering those kinds of contexts because I have to remind myself constantly, especially living with my four-year-old who I've raised in this way. Like It's very self-fulfilling in a lot of ways, I think. We have to just drop a quick clip of Bernadette Peters singing, uh, Children Will Listen, uh, Careful the Things You Say, um, because Children Will Listen. Because that's the other thing is that, I mean, to a certain extent, kids are only going to educate themselves as much as they can, right? I mean... They're not going to do a deep dive on the heroics and shit unless you you really encourage it, and and so and that was one of the very interesting scenes in the bridge where the teacher is kind of like when the the colonel is saying it's like well I talked to your kids and they're like super into this they can't freaking wait to defend the fatherland and he's like oh how did that right. happen he's like well you taught it to them even right. if you didn't personally if you just taught them the curriculum. It's baked in. And it's South Pacific, that's like you have to be carefully taught. It's not born in you. It happens after you're born. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade you've got to be carefully taught is that the song you have to be carefully taught how do they grow up to want to be soldiers well you have to be carefully taught yeah it's baked in Listen to this poetry. Listen to this poetry. Just stop and think about what this poetry... And then the teacher's like, oh, but it's been taken over by lunatics. It's like, that's how it works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, l- lunatics wrote that poem. You understand that, right? <laughs> so, and so the the kids in the bridge, they're about like five years older than this kid is. Five or six yeah. years older than this, you know? And in the bridge, they looked like kids, you know, at 15, 16 years old. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's that's too young. You should be kicking ball you should be chewing gum again. with girls you should be giving a watch and taking a back you know like that should be what you're be up clear to. in a field you should, you should be digging you should be, potatoes out of the ground <laughs> working in a coal mine <laughs> you should be playing um you should be playing imagination tv um yeah. but imagination the, tv is a form of revenue though worth noting and the article points that out it shows they're making money they're making yeah. money is what they're trying to do that's hustle culture and that's part of 2015 right. Um, but it's a so, good example of what they're talking about, where the culture is like playful, but also work oriented. It's not just mere innocence. Like they're but, making money. So in 
in the bridge though that and in this movie that it's it's looked at as being a negative right that these kids mm-hmm. have been indoctrinated and want to and want to do this it's looked mm-hmm. at as being bad the most decorated soldier in american history is Audie murphy and he enlisted yeah. at 16 yeah he lied about his age and enlisted and they tell that story and that story is told like what a little fucking hero he just couldn't wait mm-hmm. to to defend the country we fucking do it too and we don't we don't admit it and so that's like one of the problems with this with this movie it's like it, this movie would be different if it existed amongst a larger library of right. other movies that brought this up when i say it's no one movie's fault it's the choir it makes exactly that point it makes exactly that point and that's where we talk about history and context mattering and your intentions matter but hardly at all it's a really good way of putting it if, it, if there were a lot of other movies giving us a lot of other stories this version wouldn't be so bad but because it is so afro pessimistic it's just yeah. falling into a lot. We of need to problems. hold a, a candle up or a mirror, a candle. We need to hold a candle up to all of our stuff and just burn it all up. Um, but <laughs> we need to hold a mirror up to our, to ourselves and think about how we indoctrinate our own kids into picking up a fucking gun and shooting protesters and use the reflection of the sun then to burn it all up. So mm-hmm. really, really sad when his um, mom and sister got to get in the car. And 16 minutes not. in. Yep. Agu Just... doesn't get to go dur- to, during the evacuation. Um, it's, it's kind of like the bridge there. You know, he goes running after his mom. She goes, uh, she goes riding off. Um, what there a effing nightmare very... as yeah. a dad. That must be rough for you. It always felt that way, but definitely now like, very few moments in cinema will get me more than separating families due to crisis emergencies, seeing them go separate ways in these rivers of people. It's just like, oh, God, hate it, hate it. Ever since uh, the American tale, <laughs> it's always given me trauma. <laughs> Ever since my mom crowd surfed away from me at a U2 concert. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So the war has reached the village. Like after the mom leaves, it's like it's a pretty harsh cut. Um, The kid is is going through the town. The town is now like deserted pretty much. People are laying on their bellies. There's just the sound of war there. They scramble through the streets. Um, People get kind of shot. They go and they hide in a shop and they're sitting in there. There's bullet holes in the in the whole of the shop, people want to run. This is like in Bambi, you know, with the, uh, with the bird. He's like, I want to get the fuck out of here. Ah! And then, um, and then the other birds are like, shut the fuck up. Um, similar to that. Um, they're taking and- shots at the moment, but if they run, they're definitely getting shot. So you figure that out. Right. And what's, what's going on is that they're like looking out one of the bullet holes and they see like, like, government troops walking down the street in a patrol and one of them just gets like whacked and they, they, they start shooting back they get shot like from the direction of that shop and so when they start shooting back they're like lighting up the shop and the guy's like holy shit we can't be in here it's like well if we go out there we're gonna get for sure get shot and yeah. then a tank pulls up or not a tank but it's like a, a you know a a, large caliber gun on right. wheels <laughs> it, it rolls up and then it just like starts pointing in their direction and starts lighting up the building they're in and they're like well we can't stay here obviously so they open the door and immediately the moment they open the door just 
Saving Private Ryan style, a few guys just get immediately dropped and then everybody is pulled out into the street. And then this is where we get the the confrontation where the the dad is like, was like, we're just here to protect the place from looters. And the guy goes, oh, so we're looters now. You're going to call yeah. us, us looters, the ones who have liberated you. Um, yeah. They bring out the crazy witch lady and they say, uh, do you know this man? And she's like, no, I don't know who these people are. And the guy's like, oh, come on. This is a well-known crazy lady. And they said, nope, this is uh, this is obviously I'm, there's a movie about how they met and how yeah. she somehow gets herself in a situation where she can be informing these dudes. There's a movie where she's right. <laughs> that would be awesome. How about that? Like not to be that guy, but like, again, like this movie's not telling us anything about what's going on, just that she's to blame. And so there's a part of me that's like, well, maybe she's right. Maybe I she's right. Maybe these people her killed her whole in family in exactly the same way, but this movie's not going to tell us that. Really evocative of the scene in the bridge where the kids are fighting the Americans and the dude comes up from the basement. And he's like, could you all please stop? Because there's a bunch of people trying to hide right now. And you're just drawing fire right towards us. And the kids are like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm being a hero. Sorry. And mm-hmm. so everybody just gets shellacked is what happens. Yeah. Um, so we learned that these guys are the NRC, the National Reformation Council. Um, and they ordered everybody there to be summer, summarily executed. Um, Agu and his brother go running off, and Agu's dad is um, is killed, along with everybody else, his grandfather as well. Um, Agu and his brother are running through the streets, and as they run through like a little um, a little runoff area. They get shot at from above on a bridge and Agu's brother's face gets like blown off. We like pan back and we see him laying face down and his uh, face is literally caved in like a fucking rotted pumpkin. This is um, a small thing, but I wanted to point it out because I figured y'all might appreciate it. I thought of, for some reason, Lone Survivor when the 4,700 Taliban were getting shot at by the uh, Marines. Marines, don't correct me. Um, How... Every time we saw them getting killed, that the camera was beneath them and looking up at them, and they were getting shot. And in this instance, and in pretty much every instance, like Schindler's List style thing that I see where this happens, the camera's going to be up above these people looking down at them. And it came because I was like, when people get shot in movies as a result of like a firing squad or something, it's very different. It's just like, bang, and they all fall over. You get it? It's not nearly as dramatic. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when people get shot in combat sequences, it's always shot from that low angle to make it look like part of the action sequence. It's never so helpless, never so pointless. Is that just me making shit up or does that sound kind of plausible? I don't know. Well, I don't know. We didn't really see the kid get um Magoo's brother get killed. So We they were running they they were under they were kind of under they were in like a culvert or something, yeah, like a drainage, right. and the people mm-hmm. were up above him, and the camera was up there and it was it was looking down and his brother's a big guy. He was real tall, he was real tough. And it was a small thing, but I did. I thought about how in both instances, when we see it like an execution style thing, the camera was like up above, not paths of glory. But in this instance, in both instances, it was like anytime someone's just getting gunned down helplessly, it seems to me that's where it's going to be. It's maybe not worth it. Eli, yeah, what do you think? I mean, Charlie Charlie went to school for cinematography. Up right. angles add you know, a power complex, right? It's that's a, my novice thing being like, it, if mm-hmm. it makes it makes people smaller in the shot, it gives them a sense of, of you know, imposing, you know, towering over you, you know, or 
or even at the very least of being a participant, even in like the thin red line, the camera is in the grass and the people are running past it. But I still feel like it's more actiony. It's more like they're, they're, they're charging and they're helpless, but I still feel like they're soldiering. Whereas in this case, you just they look like little people running around and then bang, they just fall down and they're dead. Hmm. Do know. you prefer it? Is one of them. Which one of them is more affecting to you as a viewer? To me, I, I think the high angle makes it look so stupid and pointless and insignificant. And the low angle makes everyone look like a soldier, look like someone who's kind of menacing, kind of in charge, at least a participant. I don't know. That was my takeaway. but Maybe maybe it makes your me. death seem a little bit more personal or something because you're more yeah. isolated in the frame. Mm. You got the, the just the, you know, like you just turn into into meat on the dirt when you're yeah. at a low angle like that. In Paths of Glory, they were just up on the post and we were just like eyeball to eyeball with them. The mm-hmm. You're just looking, you're, you're pretty much participating with the firing squad in there. Right. Yeah. I, I'm going to watch for that. I really am. I feel like the running low angle shot of soldiers that are vulnerable in many ways still kind of glorifies their motion. I don't know. It's weird. Hmm. I was thinking like you have like execution scenes where somebody's like, standing there and putting a gun to somebody's like right to their head while they're on their knees or something. That's like a angle down, make somebody look small yep. and pathetic in there. We have, um, we have like when wit dies in thin red line, he gets an up angle. Yep. Yep. He sure does. But there's also yep. scenes I'm- where it's just like dudes like running through and it's just like a quick cut and it's just like somebody right. up angle dying. Yeah. Yeah. It's just something it'll be interesting to look for it. I'm going to look for for that. And yeah, it's the one note we made is the exception is when they give you that grand overhead shot, they're doing exactly the opposite. I said the up angle makes them feel small and insignificant, but that big overhead epic shot does exactly the opposite. It's like, look at how grand this is. Mm-hmm. So if we see one of those, I'm not really going to count it because that's like a that's like an establishing shot built for grandeur. You get it? It's more like if we see a person, a character die, is it up angle or down angle? I don't know. Anyway, a just flees, does the smart thing and runs into the woods and hides and spends basically two nights in the woods by himself. Yes. Yeah, he is. a bunch um, of leaves. Yeah, he's crying. He's dwarfed by the jungle. Um, yeah. This is at 2330. He finds a hut in the jungle. He eats some leaves. He throws them up because he's a big fan of Into the Wild. Yeah. Um, he, um, he sees a mysterious native figure that disappears into the trees, into the jungle. Um, a goo walks through tall grass and then there's a whirring of bullets. And this is where I started feeling like, oh, thin red line This is giving me thin red line vibes. It's interesting how much I get thin red line vibes for movies post thin red line when I feel like thin red line got like shit on kind of when it came out. It got dwarfed by Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. It came out the same here as Saving Private Ryan and also Elizabeth and uh, famously Shakespeare in Love was the best picture of that year. I cannot explain this, but um, I feel like its fingerprints are on every jungle movie, jungle yeah. warfare movie that has come afterward. It would be really hard, like, fascinating to find a movie that feels and sounds and seems like the Thin Red Line from before that time because I feel the same way. I wrote up at the top when he finds that hut, I said he has no food, he has no fire, he is all alone. And like this, these are all the things that the military is about to solve for him. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and I also, as soon as I heard that first sound go by, I want to play these sounds. Day two, this kid's just standing there in the woods doing nothing and he hears something like this. And then he hears something like this. 
and I wrote three, and then I wrote four, and then I wrote five. It's like after the third one, you're like, is that an arrow? Are these bugs? Like, what is? And then, oh, it is definitely bullets. These are bullets going by. The the battle finds him, and he basically gets knocked unconscious. Yep. Um, he gets captured by rebels of the PLF, apparently. And at 2830, the Commandant enters. Yeah. Uh, and we meet uh, Stryka, who is a mute kid, seemingly. Yep. Um, the Commandant asks, what are we to be doing with this thing? And mm-hmm. the, uh, the second-in-command says, this thing? It's just a boy. And he goes, a boy? A boy is nothing. A boy is harmless. Does a boy have two eyes to see? A boy has hands to strangle and fingers to pull triggers. Why are you saying a boy is nothing, huh? A boy is very, very dangerous. You understand me? And we met a guy named uh, named um, Ben Foster who would agree yeah. in another movie. Yeah. This is the line that was picked up in the article, by the way, that says that this is the Afro-pessimist link where they don't need to be told that. They don't need to be told that. That is a line for American audiences right there to be like, you think this is just an innocent child that does nothing but play? No, a boy can see. A boy can do this. It's like if you lived on the continent, so to speak, you know all of this. This is how you raise children (laughs) because you know this. They can see, they can speak, they can think, they can do many things. They're not useless, definitely not harmless. <laughs> so this is um, probably for the boy too. You know, he's empowering him. He's saying it to him so that this kid knows that he is no longer a, uh, that he has potential. He doesn't have to be a kid starving in the woods, mourning really? the death of his family. Look, kid, mm-hmm. you got thickened fingers, and when your fingers are put behind a gun, well, ain't that the great equalizer? What a wonder is a gun. What a versatile invention. Yeah. <laughs> Goes from calling him a thing to uh, telling him to say his name and say it like he's proud in a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. It's it, This is the recruitment. We're going to, I mean, pretty much every movie we're seeing, we're getting recruited, we're doing some basic training, we're in the shit, and we're getting the aftermath. And so here's the recruitment. It's short and not very sweet. But again, he has a choice and he makes his choice. In the book, this is clear. In the movie, the language is clear, but the gaze of the movie makes it seem like a tragedy to me. But he is making a choice. He is deciding he wants vengeance. He is deciding he wants food and comfort and all of those things. The commandant recognizes how to weaponize grief. It's not just grief. That's the thing. If it were just grief, that would be one thing. He has nothing. He has no food. He has no fire. He has no people. He has no thing. If it were just like, oh, you're feeling bad, I can give you the sweet honey of war, that would be manipulative. This is just nuts and bolts of survival is what it is. And they're making it look like he's weaponizing grief. That's what's so frustrating. (laughs) But yes. (laughs) Uh, they arrive at the camp after um, many, many hours of, of humping. Um, little Agu is carrying a large crate of ammunition on his head. Mm-hmm. Um, this Heavy. is American American ammunition. Everything's stamped in, uh, in English <laughs> on there. Time for a word from our sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> yep. This is a crate of 1,600 rounds of 7.62 millimeter to feed into your fucking Mag 58 or well-known in the American Army as the M240 Bravo, baby. I love that thing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good gun. Oh yeah. We if you're going to be built in America, but it wasn't. <laughs> no, it isn't. No, it's an Austrian one. I'm pretty sure. I think that FN makes it. Um, army is large here. We see that it's a uh, you know they're living pretty good up there. Um, they have all of the things that he didn't have. They have shelter up there. They are powerful. There's lots of food. He doesn't get really any of it until he is initiated. You must be initiated. Right. Um, I wrote the allure of power and the and to be without. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're going to break you down, dehumanize you, uh, make you one of the group. So there's going to be a taking and then a giving. And one of the takings at the very beginning that you hear later on, too, is when they just make them stomp their feet, salute, and say, yes, sir, over and over and over and over and over again. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. One more time. Yes, sir. One more time. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Again. Formation. Formation. Again. Yes, sir. Ambo. Give this SBU some more. Charles, is that something that you did when you joined? I mean, is that really well? This is what you do: is that whenever you see an officer. You are supposed to salute them, especially when you're outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and the officer is supposed to return the salute. Mm-hmm. Now, if you see an officer coming and there is a group of you, mm-hmm. if you all space out about 20 feet apart from each other or maybe a little bit more, you mm-hmm. can make that guy salute over the course of like <laughs> a, a block a whole bunch of times. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, people a in the military bit of do this. Resistance, even <laughs> in the most disciplinary of spaces. Let me ask you a question. I wanted to ask you. This seems like a a a, a little rabbit trail, but I, I I don't. I hope it's not. Can you tell me what it means? I know what it means, but I want you to tell me in your own militaristic sense, Charles. What does it mean to stand at attention? If I stay stand at attention or attention, what does that mean for you as a troop? What does that mean? That means your body's like pretty much like totally rigid. I mean, there's like there's there's, you know, your, your thumbs pointed down the seam of your pants. Uh, you're supposed to have your your heels together and your feet at a 45-degree angle apart, different from the British soldiers. But you're also supposed to be standing facing straight ahead, and you're not supposed to ever look around. And also, don't lock your knees. And your mind. Where's your mind supposed to be? Mm, I mean, obviously paying attention to people, but, you know... That true they pros they can't, it, true pros know inf- how to multitask <laughs> it's not enforceable but the point that i'm trying to make is that they're going to take and then they're going to give and the taking is literally taking your attention we are taking your attention and when they and that's when i thought of the phrase like at attention or stand at attention and i'm like damn that is fucking total that is like we are going to turn you into a toy you are a toy soldier now you will stand rigid until we say you there do the thing and then if we say that you do the thing if they got mm-hmm. the stripes and they say you do the thing and you're at attention, you do the thing because that's what you do. Yep. And you see all of this coming straight from the playbook of every imperialist military ever, but it's being framed as like the um, mad makings of Idris Elba's like raving commandant. I don't know. This dude's a bad that, guy. That's There's that's no what I. That's characteristic what I... to Idris Elba. There should be a uh, there should be like a pan over in um, in Man Who Would Be King where we also see like the children 
of the village who are also getting the training. One, two, three. One, two, three. <laughs> Sergeant Mulcahy and Glory just beating the crap out of the drummer boy for playing the wrong song. Just doesn't play mm-hmm. the same way, but yes, right? Like, um, we get this is where we get the indoctrination speech. Like we get, we learn all about the politics of the place and, um, and we learn about Dada Goodblood, that he is the Supreme commander. And I wrote, who the fuck is that? And who are these people? And this goes into my, (laughs) my thing that I had said about the hidden fortress is that you're low enough on the rung. It doesn't fucking matter. None of this matters. Like, like when you, when you're a private and just a troop and you're picking up cigarette butts and you don't smoke, um, you, you, you are not even remotely in the thoughts of anybody that actually has control over your life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think talk- that this movie is kind of saying that. And I, I think that there, it's not obvious, but I think that the movie is making a comment on this, but at the same time, I think a lot of people are just going to otherize this, the people in this conflict and say, isn't that fucked up what they do? But it's like, no, this is what we all do. This is how we get troops is that we make them think that they give a shit about any of this, that capital gains tax or something is something that you should pick (laughs) up a gun for. And it's like, but but that's not what they fight for, though. Again, here comes Conquer Good. Like, it's not politics. It's family. Conquer Good is writing in Chicago, and he's writing against a bunch of people studying gangs, calling them monsters, calling them evil, calling them beasts, basically saying that they exist because of debauch, like they have no morals and no values. And Conquer Good is like, listen, I live with a lot of these people, and y'all are just full of shit. Like, that's not how it works at all. And if you treat them that way, then what do you get? War. That's what you get is war. And so Conquer Good is like, you need to understand this is a family. And not to like, I think you're yeah, right. I'm not there's... saying that I'm not saying that he's that it's not a family, but I'm saying that the family is also being sold and predicated around these political things here. But none of these patriarch. political things <laughs> matter to any of these people. Right. Right. They, and that's... None of it truly none of it truly matters. But these people all have this is a theme in all of these movies that has been criticizing war is that these yes. people that don't give a shit about them are are the ones that are making and these people are being sold this over and over Mm -hmm. and over again this is being indoctrinated into them like the education in the bridge Mm -hmm. except Mm -hmm. that you are learning this very quickly now and and if you don't repeat it then you're gonna get your effing throat slit yep and 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 what's great about this movie is they show the whole thing to be a lie as soon as this supreme leader gets the chance he basically gets rid of Idris Elba's opportunity and then Idris Elba's like well fuck it we're going to start <laughs> so it's like all like just top to bottom bullshit <laughs> yeah so it 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 continues the movie continues the the tradition or like the language of anti-war films i think but i think that there is a habit all the way back to Paul Robeson's days of otherizing people and being like, oh, it's very easy to just otherize and then not think of it beyond that. You know, like Mm -hmm. when people do a, when people do the, did the, the, the switch on, on the production of Othello 
whereas like Patrick Stewart. And then it's like, isn't that crazy? All those scheming people messing with with poor Patrick Stewart. And it's like, you guys are fucking up the story, man. Like you're 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 missing the point is that you're letting your to think that, oh, only these these people do that and then not think about how how we indoctrinate our own children into doing this shit. Right. We don't, we're not making them go, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, but we're making them want to play soldier so fucking bad. Constantly. Constantly. And we're associating soldiering with, like, masculinity. And we're selling them the empire now, too. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, we talked in the last batch <laughs> about how you can be a, rebe- a rebel or you can fight for the empire. We do not care as long as you are in that Star's Wars. <laughs> I can't wait till I can go to Galaxy's Edge and buy some really nice jack boots. Yeah, um, I'm gonna go to 30... Galaxy's Edge and like steal all the things I can. I don't know what's a pacifist do there. Hard to say. No, they don't, don't go. I guess not. Go. Or you find a free pass or something, and then you criticize mm. it the whole time and pout when you're gone the ride the whole time and fold your arms did. across go your chest. Go and plant a bunch of Abu Ghraib looking, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> puppets in there somewhere where they get seen. Right? Like, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, at 3730, we get the, oh, I said that you get the conflict explained. So 3730, that's for you guys. If you're getting a, uh, any audio drops. Mm -hmm. Um, but there is a quote here. You fight and kill everyone who destroys the peace. Hell yeah. Yeah. And that's what we as Americans do. Yep. (laughs) Basically. (laughs) Fuck yeah. Um, and then I also wrote here that troop sports always get out of hand. Yeah, right. That's basically all combat movies have these little sports movies where then everybody starts fighting a little harder than maybe they should. And the leaders are like, oh, they have a good time. It's a lot of the time why I don't like to play competitive sports, really. I like to yeah. throw a Frisbee, you know, it's like, yeah. and then people for are some reason you come dumb. over and just start beating people over the head with it. Now I know why it's because this is what happens. Yeah, I said at the top of this page, I wrote, he has no food, he has no fire, he has all alone. And at the bottom of this page, I wrote guns, lesson, food. Mm-hmm. There you 39, go. 32. What brought this family together? Aaron, how'd you like this speech? What is it that has brought this big family of strangers together? Was it fear? No, sir. Was it war? Yes, sir. We were defending ourselves. We have to get revenge. Huh? We have been defending ourselves against the killings and rapings of our own people from the PLF and now from the NRC junta. But it has awakened a sleeping beast. It has awakened a giant. It has put the weapons of this war back in the hands of you, the young. And therefore, the powerful. Young men, wealth, we will not wait to inherit any wealth. We will not wait for them to come and give it to us. No, No, sir. We are going to take it. Yes, sir. We're going to take it from them. Yes, sir. Seize it. Yes, sir. All of you that have never been listened to before and have seen your family killed. Uh, you now have something that stands for you. You now have something that stands for you. That is your defense. That is your family's blood. Yes, Victory! 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 We're going to seize it! Victory! Victory!
You are my family. There it is. It sounded like Conquer Good, right? This sounds this sounds like a family. This sounds like a movie that is speaking some of the voices of the children that they interviewed to write the ethnography that turned into a book that turned into this movie, where it's like, for the most part, it sounds like what Conquer Good is saying. It's like, we're going to protect you. We're going to look out for each other. We're going to give ourselves glory and honor. We're going to have some agency in this world. This is what people fight for. I don't know. What did you think? I think that when he said it has awakened a beast, a giant, and he was talking about um, putting the guns into their hands, right? I was thinking could be potentially racist. You know, the use of the word beast in regards to to people from the African continent. But also, if this movie was made directly for this podcast, I love that they used beast and <laughs> are talking about. I'm talking about putting the weapons of war and and making people wake up that golem. Yeah, right. I mean, we keep calling the the war a golem. We keep saying that war is a horror trope. Uh, the word beast has um, all sorts of connotations and works really great in those <laughs> contexts. I don't know. Uh, we get some rituals um, as they the part of you know some. Uh, Look, all frats got some uh, got some weird things you got to do, some weird hazing. And in this one, it is like a they have to run like a gauntlet where they're just getting like clubbed. And yeah. um, and Agu gets through it. He uh, he puts his arms up and kind of goes through and takes the hits and he's able to to get through really quick. And another kid is running through and he doesn't make it and he gets clocked right on the head and it knocks him out pretty much cold. And they pick him up and drag him. Um, off to the side and some like shaman of some sort like some dude in a robe um, slits his throat and uh, and then later on they stick his body on a pyre and they burn him up yeah this is another thing the article pulls out and it's like it, it does and doesn't do afro pessimism here is where it does do some of the afro pessimism right here <laughs> it's not in africa but there's all sorts of tropes that come from africa and this is one of the scenes where they're talking about proximity they're talking about accents they're talking about the naked guy running around they're talking about cannibalism they're talking about the jungle they're like this movie is landed on really thick and it is bestializing them so on the one hand, you have the words that are like, it is a family, this is what it's about. But then the entire context of the movie is like, they are monsters in a jungle. And I'm waving Califel's book, Monstrosity, Performance, and Race in Contemporary Culture, and saying this movie's doing two things at the same time, and they kind of conflict with each other. Hmm. It's interesting. And what if people really do this sort of shit? Like, Yeah, right. I mean, well, again, like, up until we started caring, the military did. We said that that in in Glory Trip's character, he would have been straddled to a wagon, and that would have broken his back. Is what would have happened because you're not supposed to like the not like the discipline's important. And far enough back, we will. If 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 you break the rules in the army, we'll just blow your brains out because like hey, like you can't not follow the rules. But this makes five it jumps look- in the Marines. You get like beat up. They take your wing, your jump wings, and they uh, push them into your chest and uh, push them into there pretty good. And everybody takes a turn. Call it your blood wings. Yeah, baby. Right. This movie's going to make it look like some people are like extra uncivilized in this regard, right? That's <laughs> the vocabulary of Afro-pessimism. Do, Eli, do, did you find anything about this sort of stuff? I, I mean, I found several articles on the use of actual, you know, and I don't know if this term is uh, 
pejorative or not, but witch doctors. Um, that, that's a, it's a common usage in these uh, child, particularly child soldiers, uh, you know, armies where it gives them some kind of spirit. There's a New York Times article I was reading from 2007 um, by Jeffrey Gettleman called The Perfect Weapon for the Meanest Wars, where they talk about the power that this belief gives uh, people. And this is back in the um, uh, the war in Mozambique in the 80s, uh, in the Congo in the 90s and stuff like that. And then also I wanted to point out that that naked fella is based on a real character named General Butt Naked, uh, who fought in the first Liberian civil war, um, who is now a priest, funny enough. Um, but he was a, he believed that his nakedness gave him power uh, and it would protect him in the conflict. So this movie is kind of this grag, grab bag of African tropes to represent the one story, right? Mm. That's our similar kind of problem there. But I think it's funny that you said they became a priest because while you were telling the story of the New York Times article about the witch doctor, I'm like, I want a similarly written article about the dude in the boat at the beginning of Saving Private Ryan doing the Our Father who art in heaven. That's what I want. I want the exact same article because that's better positionality. You see what I'm saying? It's like we're poorly positioned to talk about witch doctors in the way that they do and do not work on child soldiers, but we can talk about that dude in the boat. And uh, yeah, he's doing the same thing to a bunch of what, 20 year olds, teenagers. And because they're 18 now, we're okay with it. It's so weird that we put like, like your adulthood on a number. The article says we use liminality. Liminality is a number. What the hell is that? You're 18. You're a soldier, regardless of where you are at developmentally. It does not matter. That makes no sense. The way of doing it the other way of like, you know, they're always a person and they have responsibility and choice always makes way more sense. We had a guy in our platoon who was 17 thanks to a, a, a parental waiver. Yeah. Anyway. Did um, he pray? Because I want to hear a story about that witch doctor that... <laughs> no, he partied a lot. Um, I was going to say that that <laughs> witch doctor, the stories of all of the... He sat with him and he told me a, uh, a stories of all of the horrible atrocities that he uh, did and how he yeah. turned his life around. And I have to tell you, it was pretty cool until he told me all that God shit. I like to quote right on John and I say, Jesus doesn't love me, but he likes me as a friend. So uh-huh. it's good. Uh-huh. It's good. <clears throat> anyway, yeah, he gets um, initiated. They shoot at them with blanks. They make them stand yeah. up and they, they they pretend to execute them. And I'm thinking of the movie Rust and the end of Brandon Lee's life and being like, not that this is inconsequential here, uh, but I guess it works. He's like, you're invincible. You can't be killed. And they all seem to believe it. There's lots of moments where they're taking fire and it shows the militia and everyone is standing there just totally immobile. Nobody flinches from the bullets at all. Pretty cool, man. I wish we did something like that in basic training. We just had the poem to memorize and stuff. Um, Run through these tires. <laughs> they leave the camp and then they burn it all down um, because they don't want to leave anything for the uh, for the other forces to use. This is very thin red line music ish as this is going on. It's like a lot of the dun 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 as it goes on. then um, we also have a shot right up into the leaves and the trees and it's like it's easy to say that's not fair come on what i can't shoot up into the leaves of the trees from my point of view as a person walking looking straight up without being accused of stealing of ripping off thin red line but it's like i don't know man gives it that vibe along with that music and everything (laughs) right 
this was what I was going to use for the opening when he says at the end, he says, your enjoyment is over. Now it is time for war. We are warring. You did enjoy our camp, but here we are moving, moving forward. And it's a very transitionary space where he's been recruited, he's been turned into a soldier, and now they go to war. And what better way to demonstrate we're going to war than to burn everything to the ground? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. that's what it's all about. In the book, they talk a lot about this and uh, how, like, everywhere they go, like, they just stop hearing the wildlife because they're just eating everything. All the leaves and the palms and stuff are pulled down for shelter, and then they're just burned anyway. Um, It's And and how, like, the military just consumes everything, you know, wherever it goes. It just takes and takes and takes. And it's easy to say it's like wow that's so fucked up but it's like we do all the same shit you know it's like the military will kick in your door the fucking kid defending the bridge is gonna fucking break right into your damn house while you're trying to mind your own effing business some of the most toxic places on earth and indeed in the united states are these so-called brown sites left behind by military bases and militaries when they leave they don't always clean up when they're supposed to he has this line where he says that he wants to see his mother again like revenge and the chance of seeing his mother again continues to be one of the kind of motivators for him as he goes through all of this. Um, But by and large, he's doing the thing. He's doing the thing. He's learning the lessons. He's learning to march. He's, you know, filling the shoes. They give him huge boots, huge boots. But, um, and those are like so tragic. His little legs and those great big boots performs so well throughout this movie and just making me heartbroken for him. What an incredible metaphor to put mm-hmm. him in those massive combat boots throughout this movie. Oh my God. As somebody who has a hard time finding, um, finding tall boots with a skinny calf to gift to their wife, I can understand how this kid <laughs> feels. Um, so this is 47 minutes in. We have uh, Debrook. Um, this is uh, the the bridge here. We get our own version of it. Um, Agu is hauling ammo for everybody. Um, everybody gets high. Um, that is not unique, although people would probably maybe find it unique to um, to these these uh rebels and troops in africa but american soldiers get high all the fucking time it's a serious serious problem perhaps or maybe not a problem but yeah, guys sure in book I've oh, i was gonna say war. that yeah people in in afghanistan in afghanistan that have to do uh war all the time and then are just very close to heroin and marijuana I fucking guarantee you that they're sneaking off to a shitter and um, doing heroin or marijuana to not think of being in the war. So, yeah. Yeah. And Master and Commander, it's laudanum, it's opium, it's alcohol, and they definitely dish that out. Um, There's all sorts of examples of people hopping up soldiers to make them more soldiery. The Marine Corps currently having a problem. (laughs) They have to start testing people for LSD because a serious, like, not insignificant number of Marines have been, like, micro-dosing all the time on LSD because, I don't know, they fucking hate being in the Marines or something. Or it feels great. One of the two. Maybe both. It can be both. (laughs) Well, Um, it, it impairs your judgment. It translates your experiences in ways that can be euphoric, even when they aren't. 
Although it seems to me we don't get nearly enough stories of people that have bad trips during war. That to me would seem to be the downside of this experience. Mm -hmm. And um, you'd have to make sure you're picking your meds, I guess. Right. And, uh, and hopefully when you're having your bad trip, you don't just like run out like the kid in the bridge and just get like <laughs> well, blasted, losing your mind. I'm just thinking of the people that like shell up when the light's on and they're like, I can't go anywhere right now. It just seems like the wrong <laughs> mode for a soldier. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's okay, man. It's just French fries. No, I can't go near it. It's going to kill me. That person's no. not taking the bridge. <laughs> I wrote here, uh, what's rule number one in an ambush? Do any of you guys know the answer here? You don't talk about the ambush? <laughs> yeah, Sorry. You don't talk about the, you don't tell any of your friends about the ambush. <laughs> I see some new people at the ambush tonight. <laughs> that means you broke rule number one. <laughs> um, obviously, it's to uh, be quiet. And even if you're bitten by a snake to stay quiet, um, because yeah. when the enemy's around, if you make a noise, you could get everybody killed. I go in the ambush, rule number one, no noise. You keep quiet. Keep very quiet. If even snake boy lies, you keep quiet. You get hit, you keep quiet. Where's the rule number one in ambush? No talking. If a snake is biting you. Okay. If you talk, the enemy needs to come around. We all go die. <laughs> these guys um just shoot the fuck out of everybody they mop these guys up so effing quick it is um it's pretty uh pretty brutal um i said here i find myself asking who and why as if any of it matters <laughs> um and i said um what is war but an old young snuff fetish yeah yeah um, I mean, we don't get any justification. We do know that the, one of the people that gets killed, that Agu kills, says that they're an engineering student. It's just people coming to fix the bridge, and they're given like a military escort. And so, this is a little shout enough. out to the uh, to the book. In the book, um, Agu says that he wants to be an engineer um, while he's in school. First, uh, he says mm -hmm. that he really, really, really wants to go to school and can't mm -hmm. wait till he's old enough. And then when he finally he finally gets to go, but he says that he wants to be an engineer because of how he sees that engineers and doctors are treated. And mm -hmm. here in the movie, um, we see how uh, the engineer is treated. Maybe he's naked. So I don't know. Maybe he had a uniform and he's just saying it and he's a liar. Maybe he's the right. guy that killed, um, killed his family. Um, so this is a fun moment. Um, the ambush is like, they shoot like a rocket down the road and, and just mm -hmm. machine gun everybody, but they drag a guy over and he's begging for his life. Can I say one thing about the ambush before you get to this part where they drag this guy up? It did. It mm -hmm. made me think just like the the star of the show, the the leads of our show so far have been the uh, Kalishnikov and the RPG. We see these things freaking everywhere. And we talked in um, Lone Survivor about how if people know what they're doing. It won't take long and it's pretty straightforward. And you see that here. It's just like one RPG and like three minutes, not even of shooting. And that's it. Nope. Yeah, doesn't take a lot of time once everybody uh, once everybody lights up. Um, so we're saying that this part of the movie, they drag the guy over here. He's teaching him how to uh, chop a machete down into a head, um, and and this is instructional for people, especially Americans who have been watching so many seasons of The Walking Dead, and that they might have a misconception at how easy it is to puncture a skull. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's super hard, apparently. Even a little kid with all of their enthusiastic energy has a hard time really like 
thoroughly busting through there. Um, like you can definitely break the skin and probably fracture the skull as we see in this movie, mm-hmm. but the guy's still going to be holding eye contact with you and screaming in your face as blood pours out of his head. And you might need your other friend then to come over and hit him on the other side of the head with the machete. And then you can just kind of like see where it's just like been bonked really hard as he's still like screaming and then kind of falls over. But it's okay because that blood that you see is justice. So that's mm-hmm. fine, apparently. Yeah. He um he really gets into there. Um, this is more graphic in the book. So Yeah, right. I don't know, I Aaron. Is that a cop out? <clears throat> To not show all of it. It's This is a good example of where we have talked about whether we show violence or not show violence. And we're like, often it's just a fetish. It's just a fetish. It's just a fetish. And to me, this is somewhat pointless and fetishistic. They're going to make it the grimmest, most horrific example possible of his transition. They're going to frame it in the... um. The, 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 the gaze of victimage, even though it's very clearly a choice that he's making. And he says something almost identical to what the guy in the thin red line says, which is that I've killed a man, which is the worst thing that you can do. And no one can touch me for it because I am a soldier. God. I have killed a man. It is the worst sin. But I'm knowing too. It is the right thing to be doing. And the line in his voice and in in the music and in the context sounds like, oh, this poor child. Whereas in the Thin Red Line, when the guy says it, he's despicable. is clearly rendering him despicable for that sensation. You get it? And if this movie had done that same line that same way, it would be less of a fetish and it would be more of a honest statement. But instead, it's mm. that that graphic, and then it's like this poor kid, and it's just gross. It's all unnecessary. So this is um, this is you don't know what this means, Aaron, but this is a goose private Joker moment. Mm. Mm. What is a private Joker um, moment? Does that require private- clarification? <laughs> Um, eventually it'll make sense to you, but the, uh, I will say that a private Joker moment is not in reference to Joker himself, the, the clowned prince of crime, (laughs) um, in the bathroom jerking off or something. That's not a private Joker moment. (laughs) I was like, was Joker in the army? He's like, private Joker to the front. (laughs) Yes, sir. (laughs) Yeah. The private Joker moment is when you do a gnarly war thing and get your thousand yard stare. Mm, okay okay i wrote um i wrote every time a head is split and a goo gets his gun mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's very christmasy very christmasy as we record mm-hmm. this here in december and people listen to it in january they're like enough yeah um it goes from that and the kids wailing on the dude to the kids just kind of hanging out and chatting after the fact in a way that really tries to normalize this and say this is the environment they live in. And this is where we get the conversation with Stryka, where he's asking Stryka why he doesn't speak. Stryka says nothing. He says, are you enjoying this war? And Stryka just shakes his head. And it mm-hmm. this is one of those moments where I felt like it does the relationship between these two so well for the next several minutes. Stryka says nothing. Um, but it's really moving the way that you get honesty from this character. You get, I don't know, it's just a lot. It was really great. I tell you, the the lead in this and Stryka, um, 
they do an incredible job. I meant to look to Absolutely see if amazing. either of them did any acting again. The movies like this always position it as like this is their big breakthrough and everything's going to be great for them, and then they just leave them and no one no. ever hears of them again. And the director goes on to bigger and better things, and the dude who wrote the book is in charge of a million other things. And this kid's like, I did that thing. It's probably pretty cool. It, it is. They're all really amazing. The cast is really, really great for sure. You know, let me say this about the moment when um, when a goo splits that guy's head open as he screams and blood pours down his head and you see the open uh, machete wound in his skull. Let's dwell um, on it as long as the movie does. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, is that is that For there effect. is a scene there is a scene that I sent you on YouTube from the um, HBO series Barry where he is in his acting his like acting class and and the acting teacher is making him like talk about the first time he killed somebody. Yeah, there's two on a rise. Looks like they're checking out their buddy. No way. No, 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 no. And the kids there or the other actors are there and they're very like earnestly trying to act out what he's explaining as it goes on. He killed them both, soldier. I don't I, I killed them. <laughs> Oh my god! Oh god! I'll never be able to forgive myself. Is that how it happened? And he's remembering what really happened. And in the as he's telling the story, he's telling it very matter of factly. But after he shoots the guy, everybody's like, "Whoa, Barry fucking popped his head! Wow, cool, Barry! Oh man, you fucking double shot those guys! Cool!" And he's like smiling and like really like eating up the adulation. Are you kidding me? He got him. Both of them. Smoke both those pieces of shit. <laughs> Dudes, this silent ass Barry here's a fucking stone cold killer, fellas, from 700 yards. Jesus oh my God. God. Fucking yeah. What are you doing? I was going to take the bib off. Forget it. <laughs> Barry Bourbon. Barry. Barry Bourbon. Barry. Barry Bourbon. Barry. Is that what really happened? They mean well, <laughs> but they don't understand, man. Just confused. And yeah, and that that is very much potentially what's going on here. Yeah, exactly because right. he gets a lot of positive feedback mm-hmm. as this happens. People mm-hmm. like cheer him on, and so that probably feels great. In fact, right. they should show him like smiling, and then they should just give you a reverse cut of like what that guy's head looks like now. <laughs> Well, the whole point is that this is his moment where he makes the choice to become a member of the group and everyone is going to say, but if he doesn't make that choice, he is going to die and all of this other stuff Um, because the movie really wants it to be framed that way and needs us to think that way. Um, It just kind of pigeonholes him. But no, he he does it because that's the that's what you do now. You're in the group. You're in the gang. That's how you get the reinforcement. Everyone else is celebrating that. It's what makes you a man. And Stryka is like the first real moment of doubt. You get it? Stryka doesn't seem to have much doubt when it comes time to do the killing, but is willing to at least express it. It made me think of the moment in the bridge where the dude's like, were you afraid? And the other guy was like, yeah, of course I was afraid. Like, do you like the war? No, I don't like the war, but we're going to keep doing it. Anyway, can I put this yeah. note in, in the, the, the episode? Mm-hmm. I want to say it. We talked no, in Hidden sorry. Fortress. <laughs> we talked in Hidden Fortress about on. horses being scary. Helicopters are scary in this one. It's helicopters. Oh, yeah. 
And I know that in the history of warfare, the helicopter in many ways replaces the horse. And like this is like a fun example where it's like, what does the big bad army sound like? It's either hoof beats, or in this case, it's every time that helicopter comes over, everyone just hits the ground and then cheers. Clippity clops in the sky. Yeah, right. Um, I said I wrote here, kids playing in the tall grass gives me thin red line vibes, and then I wrote here. Um, shortly after that, I wrote because I'm racist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Limited, mm. limited, like contextual vocabulary, and we're all deep down. Just we go the same way when we see similar things. Yeah, it all sounds and looks. I'm the like, same. Huh, native kids and tall grass, yep. thin red line, and yep. it's like, but the Polynesians or whatever. It's like, it's uh, funny hmm. because we reference it a lot in the show, and it's an underseen movie, which means a lot of people are hearing us reference the movie that they've never seen, as though it is really well, for. Make sure you guys watch it, and so that way it's like I'll give we're giving you a lot of time yeah, to get, get ready for it. Four and a half hours talk about it, where you have nothing else to do and sit down and watch the Thin Red Line. I love, mm-hmm. and, and then get eight and a half hours to listen to our episode. Yeah, I love the moment the UN goes by and you see the person taking their picture and the woman up against the glass. I thought for sure she was gonna come back, and she kind of does, but in a different face. But it is a good example where it's like there goes the international community, too prudent to do anything about it, mm. but definitely willing to take a bunch of pictures and file a report. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's gonna. Those pictures are gonna inspire this movie. Right. Um, <laughs> Just opened up a wormhole in my brain with that comment, Charles. <laughs> Self fulfilling narrative of the white gaze and Afro pessimism, right there. <laughs> the um, the commandant is is really telling the kids about how um, this town that they're going to be going to eventually has got some women, and it's like these kids are so fucking young. It's like I wrote here, what the fuck do they care about women? You know, it's like I knew I was like a horny little kid when I was growing up and stuff. And I (laughs) just like, you know, but at the same time, it's like, what was I going to do? I don't want to do that. I want to play freaking video games or do anything else. Kind of. I just I just don't think we talked about the standards of toxic masculinity. And according to cats, one of them is like the predatory relationship towards women. And um, another one is like the ability to do and absorb tremendous amounts of force. You don't know what to do. You just know you're supposed to. And you know that when you do Mm -hmm. it, you're big and you're great. Mm -hmm. And these kids are all learning about how to be a man from a bad man. And this is like, this is what what the man does. This is what the commandant does is that you talk about your soldier standing at attention for the women. It's a bad man exploiting existing narratives. Again, this whole movie starts with them enacting the media and going to church. And that's where, again, we're saying it's like the tropes are going to be the same in terms of what makes a man. He's just being honest. (laughs) I wrote here. um, So my entire note, now that I look at the entire thing here is that the fuck did these little kids care about women only to feel grown up to be men to no longer be in kindergarten. Right, right. Don't want to be in kindergarten. We learned that one in the last episode. Agu tries to make friends, it seems, and she'll have absolutely none of it. And I thought that, like, again, that was, we always talk about how, for me, whenever people show kindness in war, I don't want that to work out well for them because that's just not how war works. And that's what happens. That's how it goes down in this movie. He tries to show yep. kindness from her. She slinks from him and then she gets taken away from there by the junta and we never see her again. Oh, so what happens is that some refugees show up after the uh, the talk about all the babes in the town, and they're from a different town, maybe, that has been taken by the government and the PLF. And so they're like, well, we're going to take that town back. 
And this is cool, right? Like this is, we saw what happened to Agu's town and we don't want that to happen to these people. And so the rebels are going to take them back. They're in the right here. Right. That's, um, it's so a great at one example of how it sets one up. And the second time you're like, I don't know though. I don't know. I don't know. I don't do, <laughs> I don't know. Hey, wait, now are we, let me talk to my friend Daskal or whatever. His yeah, name right. Exactly. They called me tank boy. So they're standing on the outskirts of the town and they're watching like this battle raging in there. And um, Preacher, one of the one of the guys, hey, look, every platoon's got to have some sort of Preacher in it. Guy named um, Bronx, a guy named Shep. We do have a guy named Rambo um, and a guy named Tripod. Um, <laughs> right. So these are all classic names. Um, in my platoon, Tripod would have been... Um, you would have seen that character and he would have had the tiniest schlong. <laughs> And that's why he would have had the name Tripod. It would have been an ironic thing. Um, but they're they're yeah. saying, look at the fucking PLF. And there is a wall there. And there's a bunch of civilians that have been murdered by the government troops. And a bunch of their hands have been cut off. There's a fucking pile of hands there as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, and it is. It's evocative of the scene in the beginning where they're like watching the battle from far away. And I'm thinking of people trying to hide in that battle in the circumstances that Agu was in right at the very start. But yep. now Agu is on the other side watching the shells. It's better to not be on the business end of that army that shows up. Um, for the sake of this episode and references to JPF or to uh, to the PLF and whatnot. Um, we need Life of Brian clips of people talking about the Judean People's Front and the People's Front of Judea and them always getting mixed up. Listen, the only people we ate more than the Romans are the fucking Judean People's Front. Yes. Yes. And, yes. Split, and the Judean Popular People's Front. Oh, yes. Yes. Split, 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 and the People's Front of Judea. Splitters. The People's Front of Judea. Splitters. We're the People's Front of Judea. Oh, I thought we were the Popular Front. People's Front. Whatever happened to the pop in the front? He's over there. Spear! Yeah, just incoherent acronyms for everything on purpose to be like, it's all too confusing. <laughs> um, the second in command is at a bridge with part of the troops and they're all pinned down. It's a pretty heavy fire over there, and he's talking to the commandant on the radio, and he's like, oh, we're pinned down, you know, it's like we're taking a lot of a lot of fire here. We see, like, a kid in the background trying to drag an adult body off of the road. Um, it's, it's pretty bad, and the commandant is watching sort of through, like, a, a surveyor's scope, mm-hmm. and... And then he directs um, a mortar. They don't seem to know in this movie how a mortar works. They like throw the the thing down there and then it just sits in there. And then they like pull a trigger, I guess, or something and it fires. What you do with the mortar is that you just sling it down the tube and then there's an impact like thing at the bottom there and it just shoots right back out again. That's why you have to load it in like you're jacking off a big old dingus because if you have your hand pass over the top um, when you throw that thing in there that mortar can bounce right back out and blow your hand right off you also have quickly. to shout fire in the hole fire in the hole because that you get to shoot wild. fire in the yeah, hole yeah, fire in the hole yeah, yeah so as this is going on the commandant gets everybody like really pumped up 
Better look me in the eyes, motherfucker. Um, I thought of the 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 conversation um, at the beginning when, or, or the just before this, when they were like, you know, how's it going? He's looking through the scope that he takes off the people that they murder on the bridge, and he's talking to the guy who's like up on the front. He's like, how's it going? And the guy is like flat against the ground with the phone up against his ear, and he's like, well, we're not having a very good time right now. Things could be better. He's very under. What are you doing laying on the ground where you can't see a goddamn thing? Everyone around him is getting murdered. Everyone around him, like the shit's hitting the fan. And it's like, it is. The whole point of this conversation is that in war, there's going to be people that are supposed to be just like having a conversation about how it's going. It's like, not only are we going to send you into the front where the bullets are flying and the bombs are falling and your friends are just getting blown to pieces, but we're going to be like, Charles, hey, hey, Charles, Charles, how are you doing? <laughs> What's going on over there? Yeah. Hey, can you see that house? What? Um, Could you just look over? <laughs> and it's like, if you're the dude at the back on the phone, there's no problem at all. But if you're the guy on the phone, like, how do you just keep calm enough to be like, this is what we need over? <laughs> they don't um, sound that we way. See... If you ever listen to combat footage, they don't sound that way. <laughs> we see another mural in the background here. It says, our nation, our future. And it has like a bunch of guys in uniform all standing at attention in the government uh, uniform. And then it has like a bunch of civilians standing behind them. Very threatening now. Um, but the guys in uniform, all black soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, Very threatening. You know, maybe this means something. Yeah. The um, first one's like, we can cooperate and avoid war with a bunch of white people. And this one says, our nation, our future, as a bunch of indiscriminately acronymed black people just shoot the shit out of each other. Afro-pessimism. <laughs> they... Um, they all get pumped up and get ready to go into uh, into battle. You know, if you're a man, let's get let's get out there. Yeah. Um. I said it feels good to belong. Yeah. Doesn't it? it feels yeah. great. They can take our lives. They'll never take our freedom. This moment in the movie, I feel like, always feels better than the actual moment in life. I don't know. I've never had that happen to me, but I feel like anytime I'm standing there and the dude's like, "All right, here comes my speech," I'm like, "Oh nope, I know what's coming next. I'm this is it." <laughs> This is the end of my list. A lot of you aren't going to make it. <laughs> I feel, again, I, I, we said in the Glory episode, we need more characters when they hear the celestial voices being like, oh, this isn't good. We should change our, we need to rethink our plan because this means we're all going to die. I need more people when the general starts giving a speech to be like, is he going to speech right now? If he's going to speech right now, that means we're about to attack. And if we're about to attack, we're totally going to get fucked up. <laughs> is he smoking a cigar? Yeah. Oh, no. He doesn't give a shit about us at all. Yeah, he's definitely smoking a cigar while he's giving a speech. I know where this is going. I'm out of here. I'm going to oh, go to the bathroom. Fuck. You need to go? You need to go, don't you? Let's go. We're going to go to the bathroom. 106... <laughs> 106.24, Agu fires his gun for the first time, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, it like kind of shakes his whole body, but he's getting the feel of it. Yeah. Um, they go rampaging through the town. They go, um, they go through and they, but they're not like wasting civilians. They're engaging other combatants. Um, they go right down the street as the Lieutenant is laying on his belly. Um, he is only unable to get lower because his buttons are in the way. (laughs) Um, he is, uh, he's like looking up and the commandant has everybody with him, all of his kids. And they're kind of just like almost dancing down the road as mm-hmm. they, as they come and retake the, the bridge. We have the naked guy with the mag 58 firing from his hip. We have, uh, we have everybody and they do a great job. It's very inspiring and it only loses them 11 KIA 
retaking this town. There was a weird moment in a documentary that just randomly played the other day on YouTube about the 101st Airborne taking Carantan about how like Welsh and Winters had a very similar scene where Winters and his men were pinned down by a machine gun and Welsh just walks right by with a couple of his guys and Winters gets up and just starts kicking the shit out of his men to be like, look at that, we need to help them fight the war. And it's like, morale, morale, morale. You don't want to do the thing. You don't want to fight the thing. But if you see someone you know or someone you care about walking forward, then I guess that gets you out of the ditch and into the fight. I don't know. With his hat on the end of his sword, charging the Union he's, line. And he's Yeah, right. Well, and Idris Elba is like waving this like feather thing at people. He's not carrying any weapon. He's just like magically mm-hmm. dusting them aside. But he doesn't give a shit about why, why should you be afraid right. to be shot? Here's a guy. He doesn't even have a gun up yeah. there. And he's just like... He is like yeah. just willing people forward they were and protecting them the, just through his mojo. Yeah, they were interviewing one of the writers is what it was. And he talked about Spears doing the thing where he ran twice across the field and this. It's like, I'm going to show you invincibility to somehow motivate you. And I'm like, it works when it works. But then the other time is the, the story you don't hear where a guy's like, yeah, he just got up and started walking and got headshot. And then we all like retreated. <laughs> There's more of those stories. <laughs> no, I just watched. Um, I, I've been taking... I've been taking some dark, deep dives uh, and watching some horrific footage on uh, on the old YouTube. I saw this. Uh, I saw this dude, and that was pretty much what was going on. Was that they're just like pinned down, and everybody is like, "No, we got to get the fuck out of here." And he's like trying to urge them back, and then um, and then they eventually all get back to the truck. And then when he gets up to run back, he's just like shot and dropped. And the truck just drives away and he just kind of sits there and looks around with his helmet cam. And it's like, yeah, that's what's, that's what's up. <laughs> Nobody wanted to be there. After a certain point, it stopped being fun and exhilarating for a lot of those guys. Which is kind of where and it Agu got is too like. real. This is where Agu is at when he sees a woman that's not his mother that he thinks is his mother. and then Oh, no, this isn't it yet. <laughs> oh. No, we have something else actually kind of worse. No, mm. I don't know. Um, HQ is on the radio with, mm. uh, with the commandant and they're telling him that they're going to promote him to general. Right. You know, once you get that, uh, that bird, just can't you wait can't to wait to get star. those stars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, ready to jump right and, in there. Somebody else will. And that's good news to the commandant and he can't wait to celebrate. So he wants to promote his friend, Agu. Um, this is a bummer. This is um, implied in the movie, but in the book, this is not implied, and this is um, this goes on for quite some time, and it is a bummer. The commandant has been, I guess we saw it earlier, um, there's a scene where Stryker gets kind of like called into the commandant's thing, but now it is, it's pretty much confirmed um, if you're paying attention and you're not looking down at your phone that uh, the commandant is also raping some of these kids here. And again, it's like if this happened in Master and Commander, it would be different. If this happened in any of those other movies, it would be different. And there's plenty of historical context to say that it did. Plenty. It happens in these movies a lot. I'm not saying it Imagine being at Fort Hood. Yeah, right? Right? Yeah. So. For some reason, these versions of this story only show up in these contexts. That's the problem. You don't get that DOD money when you're telling the Fort Hood <laughs> murder stories. No, you do not, Charles. You do not. That's not realistic. Um, we need to be fighting striker, robots from space. 
Stryker knows what the fuck happened, and so Stryker um, comforts his yep. friend. Yep. Um, the next day, Agu is not feeling so great about the cause. You know, it's hard to feel motivated about your leader when they do something like that. Yep. Um, Agu has to get high so he can fight. Yep. Not uncommon. There's a lot of people that need to get um, need to get a little fucked up so that they can get loosey goosey. Yep. 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 Because uh because part of them says this is horrible, you know? Right. Yep. Yep. Going to combat's a lot like going onto the improv stage. <laughs> I'm gonna this let you tweet say one that of sixty seven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As someone who's been in both circumstances, I think you've got all the authority you need to make that claim. And weather the storm from the non-existent. <laughs> yeah, answer. winning a battle is like nailing a perfect herald. Yeah, um, it's just yes and all the way to the finish line. It is <laughs> all the way to Berlin. They baby. are they're told going into the town that um, that these are the farmers that feed the enemy, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and so that everybody is fair game that you can kill all of them. This is kind of something that they do in superhero movies, mm. where they will say. Um, like superheroes are going to go and fight and they're like, no, that place is abandoned. The only people there are private military contractors. And it's like, oh, good. Now the superheroes can fight and knock shit around and you don't have to worry about anybody being in there. Right. Um, this is sort of the same thing, except um, a different feeling mm-hmm. about what goes on, because then the kids and everybody go running into battle and they um, well, they're getting ready to go into battle. The voyeuristic U.N. journalist drives safely through and stop nothing. Right. Um, that's the plot kind of of, uh, of Hotel Rwanda. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, until they show up at the end. I mean, the UN is peripherally placed and they're benignly. Placed. I mean, they didn't really do anything. It's like they had to come to them. Yeah. Well, I mean, they were they were there. They were there. They were in yeah. situ. I you mean, know. they're just there. There's. I think right. we're going to see a lot of movies, a lot of war movies, and this will be a thing where the UN is there. And they aren't going to be necessarily portrayed as somebody that does anything. Just like as weird, as weird like DMs of the battlefield or something. <laughs> like it's, yeah, it's very strange. Yeah, I have one eighteen thirty where they're like train this new kid, and we get the whole yes sir montage again. Except now Agu is walking past it as one of the faceless soldiers while this kid. Yep, is- I wrote kids imitating the commandant. Um, you know, they go through all of this place. They're just shooting people, you know, willy nilly in the street. Oh, so this is like a big old single shot. Um, you know, this is like the signature. If you watched, um, true detective, he has a very good episode where they do a big, long single shot. Mm -hmm. Well, in this movie, they go right through a, uh, right through a house and you see the kids like the, a goo ransacking the house and everybody else is running there. And they shoot out the window and stuff and into people in the streets. And then they hear a woman screaming and then a woman is dragged out of a, um, out of Narnia. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and Agu sees her and, and the little girl that is with her. And he thinks that it's his mom and his sister. And he runs over and grabs a hold of her and starts speaking in his native language um, to his mom. Mm-hmm. And it turns out not to be his mom, as a matter of fact. And he says that she's... Well, she's denying that it's her kid, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, and my question is, like, can she just not recognize him? Is he, like, but, like, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the... Um, 
and then he he kind of like walks out the little girl's been pulled away and she's on the floor in another oh so this is like content warning if you don't want to hear this fucking shit it's like kind of 30 second forward a few times here till when you hear aaron talking and we're maybe not describing the death of children here so this has been toned down from the book would you have wanted this to be toned down or is that a cop out because in the book, like the little girl is like clinging on to her mom. She gets pulled so hard that like her leg snaps and then like striker chops her arm off and then they stomp her to death and the onto the floor. And I don't think that the mom is like mercifully executed by the kid. Is that a cop out? In this particular movie, I think it's all unnecessary and fetishistic. I, mm. I think that, again, if we're talking about, like, the Union Army or something, or if we're talking in any other circumstance, and we have more examples, then um, there's part of me that if it wants to be realistic, then you can't you can't cop out on that. No, that's how it goes. I mean, if that's the story, that's the story. You get it? It's like, but the part isn't, like, necessarily do we need to see it, do we want to see it? We were wondering, what is the, who is this movie for? And this movie is for people to see i assume it's not it's not for people in africa right like this isn't like the bridge for africa or for ghana or for nameless nations somewhere close to bordering nigeria that's also along the coast and has gold right is the movie if the movie is truly trying to say look this is a fucked up thing and it shouldn't be going on is it pulling punches by not adhering closer to the source material that it is based off of? And why would it pull those punches if not to, I mean, like what you were saying, it's like, it's to, it's to, um, it's to make things more palatable for an audience, but this isn't like paths of glory. Wasn't about, wasn't about the gore of the entire thing. It was about like the flippant trying to draw attention to like, what's the difference between just ordering these guys to just be shot in one place or ordering them on a, on a suicide mission. This movie seems to want to say that the horrors of these horrors of war are, are really fucked up and that these things are specifically wrong. Mm -hmm. So if it's saying that, then then should it be more fucked up? Like if they, they like they, they put us more similar to the Barry thing and similar to what you're saying is that they're, they sympathize with the kid too much or they put, make the kid as more of like a sad participator in what's going on. And in the book, in the book, he's like almost like gleefully kind of participating in the sort of thing. Like he's just like almost like wrapped up in the energy of the cruelty mm-hmm. and and he's and he's cruel in these moments instead of being like recognizing that he, that this whole thing is cruel and like mercifully killing the lady i think that it's interesting and the the sandig article talks about the difference between the book and the movie and how again what we're seeing is focusing less on the choices of the child and the movements he's making to become a certain person and more on the trauma around him for the sake of the trauma. 
And so the question is like, what does showing the violence do? What is it for? In Paths of Glory, I said it's a bloodless war. And we talked about censorship and all this other stuff. But I said that there's something kind of wrong with him running back and forth across that field so powerfully without any fear, without nothing. I said that I thought Glory was a little better because Shaw gets kind of traumatized. We see a dude's head blow up in a kind of like theatrical spectacle of nonsense. You get it? Like... And, and it's like the, the, the violence and glory traumatizes Shaw. And we said that the problem there is that it does nothing to him. He, you know, blows sand out of his revolver and let's go 54 and gets, you know, shot at the end of that movie like a hero. And so it's like the violence is not working in a, in a way that is meaningful to me. It's saying you can overcome it. Look at how gritty it is. In this case, the question is, why are we showing this violence? And it is, it's important to put it in context. And it's important to really emphasize that particularly when it comes to women of color and black women especially, this is their position in cinema. This is where they get put again and again and again and again. And there comes a time where the question is, how much of this do we need to know what it's really like and to know what it looks like, to know what it sounds like? Why do we keep dwelling on rendering this story? And is that all itself part of a psychological warfare of white supremacy. Well, not just in this, in right? the brutality of like the of like the machete kill or yes, something. Exactly. To not show exactly. to not show a reverse angle of the of the carnage that he's caused. Right. You know, and there there's a part of you that that could say it's like, well that that's just like you're just like making a horror movie, but then also and- in the Passive Glory episode, it's like I tried to make the point and it's hard to be made and it's hard to hear, but it's like, I'm not here for Gore's sake. The question is, what does the Gore do and what does withholding Gore do? Because I feel like many war movies withhold Gore so that, as you are saying, we can desensitize it. In this case, they're withholding all sorts of Gore. They're not showing the Gore that he's causing. They're not showing his relish in the Gore. They're not showing the full extreme of it because you're right. It would be too offensive, too too far. Keeping in mind this movie is aired worldwide and everyone can see it, but the whole point of Netflix's audience is a streaming subscription service predominantly based in countries that are not reflected by the people that they're representing in this movie. And so that gore is not a wake-up call for anyone. It's just the same spectacular song, which is like where I'm like, less of it is probably better. And so it's like with Paths of Glory, I'm like, I feel like there should be more blood. I feel like there should be more fear. In this movie, I'm like, all of it is voyeur trauma porn in my mind. It's the reason we stopped watching Orange is the New Black. It's the You get it where it's like, it's just all we're doing again and again and again. What do you think you like? I have to admit the last season of Orange is good. It's well right, written. Go it's really well written. The cast is incredible. It's so unfortunate that so much potential turns into just such redundant emphasis on screaming black women being brutalized and things you get it because of the the context i don't know does it change your opinion that the reason they probably omitted it is not for any high-minded ideal but more because they're trying to uh appeal to a mass audience that's precisely the point is to make it more palatable to make it and, right and we talked you're saying about they pull it out because you know and in, in your mind it's it's you know it's better that they pulled it out because how many times have we seen this how much do we need to see it when you're talking about it from a multi-billion dollar company making a movie that is doing it because they want 
you'd be able to watch it with your grandma. Does that make a difference? It's not a movie you can watch with your grandma. And again, I think that that's more like like a war made out of wood stuff. It makes me think of our Star Wars episode where we're like, now we're just turning it all into something we can all sit down and watch and then have a thoughtful conversation about maybe. But it's not the thing. I, I feel like that makes it worse in that case. That makes it more of a kind of consumption we talked about who this film you know who this right. film is for and it's hollywood right. liberals that have you know dinner and talk about oh my god isn't it so sad that this is the thing right do you think i think i know many of them because i work in the industry that would have turned it off if you showed the the, the nature of the actual violence that is yeah. described in the book you got to keep them you got to keep them you got to keep them yeah Valerie Carr's book, See No Stranger, opens with her conversation about a documentary that she made that won a lot of awards about Sikh populations in America being shot after 9-11 and what it's like to live through this. And um, seeing as this is something that continues to happen like April of this year, it's worth reminding people that this is ongoing. And the question is, like, how much of this do we show and what do we show and all of this? And she says that she worries about people feeling like emotional exhaustion is an accomplishment. And that's what I mean when I'm like, this movie is for white liberals to sit around and talk about. If if you come out of this movie being like, this movie's powerful, everyone needs to see it. This is a story that needs to be told. This is Coney 2012 all over again. And if you don't remember Coney 2012 exactly, it's just a bunch of white people picking an issue and feeling bad about it and making it go viral. And it's not speaking in the context or the language of the thing itself. And so in that, in that, to answer your question, Eli, the more palatable we make it, the worse it is. It's like, I don't want that story told in those contexts at all because it feels accomplishy which, and does nothing. And that's way worse than nothing being done with no feeling of accomplishment. In either case, nothing gets done. Well, you heard it here first. Aaron said that they should have gored it up like in the book yeah. and showed it all. And, and he likes Coney 2012 and he thinks Coney should continue to... <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see here. So they go and they they go to the um they go to whatever city it is that the supreme commander is in. Right. And suddenly things ha- suddenly things change when they get to the city because no longer is the commandant the commandant. He's just a commandant of another battalion. And they run into like another unit and that unit kind of doesn't give a fuck about them. Right. You know, like they all follow the same stuff, but you, you start to see things that you see in other war movies yeah. where other units are always like very wary of other units. Right. Um, they still get into the, they get into the city and they're supposed to meet with Dada Goodblood mm-hmm. and Good Blood and, um, and, to talk about this promotion and the commandant ends up sitting around forever. He's like sitting around all day long. They go to call a guy. They're like, Oh, the, the Supreme commander will see you now. And he like goes to get up and it's like to the Asian businessman that's sitting next to him instead. Um, you know, a lot of these places are making, um, cobalt is a big thing now for batteries in, uh, in, in our, our electric cars and stuff. And so places like China are locking down those, um, those resources should have been more white That's people. It's a good idea. <laughs> a good idea. Like, should have been more Americans. It should have been more. Yeah. should have been Donald. Trump. I think they're down in the, uh, I think they're down in the Southern part and the, the white people are, 
are busy over in the uh, over in the oil fields. Pretty they're, sure we're they're, all we, over we're, the continent, but yes, we're all over. But we're not thinking. We're we're too stupid to think ahead about the electric revolution here because we're still clinging on to our other dumb shit and right. uh, pumping stuff into the ocean. We could be ruining land right. again. So he's basically um, taking for money something from people else. and making his loyal soldiers sleep on the couch is what we take away from this is the guy that they've been fighting for is seeing everyone with an envelope full of cash while the, the soldiers he's feeding them, but they are going to sleep on a sofa. There's Isn't no this the story of trooping? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you want to find the general, I know where he is. <laughs> I know where he is. Yeah. I mean, look, who got rich in the Iraq war, yeah. right? Like it's not um, it wasn't the troop. No. And uh, so anyway, was it Iraq? It was Iraq. No, Iraq. They're doing good now. <laughs> it was not Iraq. <laughs> um, bags of water they're drinking out mm, of. Thought, yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. I'd never really kind of seen that before. Yeah. Um, I don't know, maybe better. Um, I think uh, I think that's a reference to like UN aid. That's how they uh-huh. come when you get them in. I was going to say we have go bags for the old earthquake here. And that's what they get these boxes full of bags because you can store more of them. Commandant gets to hang out in a, another room, and he has an audience with an empty throne for a long time, falls asleep. Well, he makes a little bit of a fuss, and they're like, oh, right this way, sir. And they just stick him in a room with a bunch of chairs. <laughs> and I'm like, amazing. One twenty nine twenty two. we see Dada Goodblood for the first time, and um, and he actually meets with, with the Commandant. He's in a very, very nice, fancy office. A lot of uh, kind of mid-century design in there. It is very fancy. It looks great. Clean, fancy clothes. Definitely has not been yep. out in the bush. He has a uh, he has actually like a coat on that I totally would love to have. It has like the short sleeves on right. it, which is ridiculous kind of, but it rules and is very, um, it's very appropriate. So this, this is kind of, we learned it, I feel like a little bit earlier, but their side is supported by the UN and that's who like they're and so now that they are winning they are starting to show up on the uh, world stage Mm -hmm. as you know the world is becoming aware of this war Mm -hmm. um and and they're going to be like questioning how things happened you know like you can't have you can't have the commandant it's not said out loud but you can't have the commandant so high in the running around as an actual general the way that he wages war. Right. Um, even though up to this point, he's been the one doing all the dirty work to put this guy into power. Right. But now that he's in power and now they're going to throw him away, huh? Right. They're going to promote him to deputy chief of secretary and his second in command is going to get promoted in instead to, uh, to take over that battalion so he's like getting his men taken away from him even part of me is like this is great for you this is great unless you are of like warmonger this is everything you want and he doesn't take it it just it's like i get it like he wants to be in charge of his soldiers and stuff but does he just really love being out there getting shot at all the time and killing a bunch of people is that what he wants it must be like the thrill of like truly just getting to see them. It's like having a boss of a small business. Just seems irrational. Hmm. Eli, I, I see. You can't you can't smoke brown brown when you're up in your you know chief That's deputy true. stuff. Like he's 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 a drug addict. First of all, he's molesting a bunch of children. You probably can't do that if you're like an actual like suit and tie 
dude and that's not I mean, what it seems like he wants to do unless you're up in a billionaire status right am i right to say bill clinton unless comes to mind especially donald trump um a lot of these people come to mind and i think that yeah i don't know it's the whole thing to me just kind of reeks of the same old like it's all money it's all like political bullshit there's no honor in it there's no meaning to it you get it there's no real kernel of conflict here it is all just a bunch of people fighting for ego is is the takeaway is kind of what i get isn't that the anti-war point of view <laughs> so no because uh, pa- pacifism never denies the actual conflicts that lead to the start of war it's a very superficial take to think that pacifists believe that all of our conflicts are fake and we can all go and sing songs and work together there are real conflicts that have genuine consequences and they you know come with stakes and yeah those need to be acknowledged so is your is your point kind of like when it's pointing to this uh, how'd you put it there's no honor in everything like that are you trying to are you are you saying that the film is saying that the soldier is honor- honorable but everybody around them is not nobody's honorable i feel like there's no honor like part of the afro-pessimism narrative that the, the the definition of it is that it is just hopelessly pointless that there is absolutely like like the story is when we think of africa we think of disease and we think of conflict and we think of poverty and we you get it like we don't think of anything that has any potential hope or like any of the big fucking cities or any you get it the, the major corporations or any of that that come out of there the whole continent is painted with this lens and in this example we have a major civil war going on and no one seems capable of articulating a desire towards a real conflict everyone's driven by like the the narrative seems to be suggesting it's being driven by greed corruption ego um drug addiction perhaps perversion definitely all of that it's just again part of me wishes idris elba's character was way more relatable i think he should be way more relatable I think he should be a much better father character. You get it? And if he were a more rational father character with more committed purpose and meaning to like actually accomplish something or at least some politician somewhere was not just dirty or shitty, then there'd be less of this. But it's like that's all I'm taking away. I mean, that is the voyeuristic aspect of this whole thing. It seems like then probably why they didn't choose a real civil conflict is you just get to pick and choose the <laughs> juiciest, grossest bits. Right. Because, you know, I mean, the I watched a documentary on the um, conflict in, in Liberia, the, the first Liberian civil war. And all of that was, you know, started after the first coup. And it was just like progressively people just got more and more greedy and more and more, you know, uh, obsessed with themselves and, and their own political power. Yeah, there's a bit in the people's history of the United States where Zinn is like a, one, a lot of the takeaways from history come down to just like the stupid little bullshit of really powerful people. And that na- narrative takes away all the other stuff that was happening. That was much more meaningful. And if we only ever focus on those stories, then we lose the actual story of the actual people that cared about the shit. And those people were in the room. Like they were in the room with Thomas Jefferson. They were in the, you get it. Like there are people that have presence and place in this story that we don't have to fabricate. You get it. And I think it is more, again, just being like in any particular example, it's probably not that big of a deal. But from the standpoint of Afro-pessimism as a trope, as a, a stereotype that people have uncovered, it's just very like conventional and unnecessary. 
I wonder if it had taken that stance where it had tried to legitimize legitimize um, some of the points of view of the war makers. If a real war project 40 years down the road wouldn't be like, well, this isn't a very good anti-war movie because <laughs> they should be saying that this is fucking hopeless. Yeah. No, I'm I'm certain the director, the guy who wrote this, is like they're gonna download, listen, their Google alert is gonna say someone talked about your movie, <laughs> and then they're going to listen to our episode and they're gonna make a sequel. <laughs> well, what I'm saying is that I don't. Well, like I said, that this movie seems to be strangely made directly for this podcast, and so, <laughs> and so I, I feel like it has made you, in order to to talk about the Afro pessimism, kind of go back on arguments that you have made against other movies. Criticism is complex and often contradictory, and it's because it's not about the particular line of the argument, it's more about the strategy of what we're trying to accomplish with the line. And if that strategy is to humanize our literature, to point to privilege and power in the way that privilege and power exploits particular people um, in really nefarious and understated ways frequently, and often very explicit ways, then that will be complex. It will be contradictory. It'll be like, that's a good idea. It can be both a very nice thing to say and also a really shitty thing to say. It just depends on the context of where you said it and like the tonality of how you say it, right? Like, so, Okay, I just want to hear you defend it. Yeah, no, I get it. And it's a good point because you're right. And, 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 and explaining that complexity is the hardest part of the job. Because every time you come to that end, everyone's like, but that's the opposite of what you said before. And it's like, I know. That's why it's so hard. It's like, it's a good point. I think you're right. And, and it's, a, it's one worth making. And we say that's the complexity to it, you know? And why I said in the first episode with Paths of Glory, it's not about the blood per se. It's about what it is doing and what, it, what it's for and what it, what it, you know, accomplishes. Hmm. Huh. Well, fun anyway, conversation. We got a happy ending to get to. Right, right. Um, well, and again, though, for what it's worth, one more touch on this, because why not? We're at two and a half hours. Bell Hooks does say that it is worth having these movies because they render our real world mistakes. The movie itself is not real, but the mistakes of the movie are real. The Afro pessimism in the movie, that's a real mistake. And that's one that I make every day of my life. And you are right, Charles, to say it is good to have this movie. because This is Bell Hooks' argument because it enables me, who makes this mistake as a white dude, settler, colonial patriarch to sit down and be like what is afro-pessimism and hopefully i do that in a way that is meaningful to me mm -hmm. yeah it's always fun to level up so they decide to go and um and celebrate all these promotions and they go to a brothel with a television that works right but no ice right <laughs> um imagination TV, go... he says and it's showing what like a bunch of it's like cops like with a prostitute or something yeah, like that right? yeah. looks like western uh there it is western television um while they uh while the kids are sitting around this is like a, a sequence where a goo is seeing a girl that he likes and she doesn't really she's scared of him because mm -hmm. he's fucking with a group of people that are scary and he's done scary things and um she doesn't want to have anything to do with it and then there's a gunshot and they bring out the uh 2ic and 2IC has been shot, and there's a woman, and she's freaking out and stuff. Well, what had happened prior to this is that the commandant is like, 
oh, you have something special for him. You know, you got a thing. And she's like the madam of this brothel is like looking at him. She's very scared. And it seems that something is up. Mm -hmm. Well, who knows if something is up? I'm not one to say. I don't want to throw accusations around. I don't know the commandant. Um, In any case, this poor guy has been shot. And um, and they're very upset about it. And the guy keeps saying, um, it was you. It was you to the commandant. And the commandant turns around and is like, he said it was you or something. And the lady's like, I was just playing with a gun. We were just rehearsing a scene. And he was just getting the camera set up. And poof, it went off. Yeah, I think when I see is saying that the other guy ordered them to do it or somehow paid them to do it. And then he just threw them under the bus was my takeaway is that totally. he probably did pay them to do it. And his guy sees through that, but he can't be you know caught doing that. And so he's got to blame somebody. And so he does. And then these poor women get shot yep. and then they leave. Now this doesn't happen in the book In the book. Um, he gets shot or he gets stabbed because he's like two. I see is like strangling a, with the woman. He's just like brutalizing her in one of the rooms and he stabs her. And the kid is not um, feeling sorry for 2IC at all. He hates him. He's like, to him, he's like a coward little little punk and he lays in the dirt and everything. And he's like happy that he got stabbed. So the choice of the movie um, is to make Idris Elba's character just that much more suspicious and, and monstrous, right? Just that much more like sleazy because it does. It all comes yeah, back to like him, a, right? And like I'm saying, there's he's got no room for reasonability in this like elba's character is just evil through and through he has no redemption story he's just a bad guy mm -hmm. he's the villain right like no definitely it, it would have been for me it definitely would have been more interesting if they had done more with him like you had said where it showed more of like the allure and the and the belonging right and more you like know? rationality like if they showed more of the highs off of it make him a rational person like he can be everything he is and be a rational person at the same mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. that's, that's why I keep telling people about Epstein. <laughs> Who, by the uh -huh. way, is living at your house right now because, uh, well, we won't get into that. Tune in next episode <laughs> to find out why Jeffrey Epstein is. Yeah, well, we have a guest on. Um, this is a scoop. <laughs> um, we will have so many downloads. Sorry. <laughs> the um yeah yeah watch out true and on we're coming um at 140 um 2ic is dying um and he tells agu this was all for nothing mm -hmm. and agu's wondering who is this nothing <laughs> and how do i tell them your last words my friend agu was thinking man we all say weird stuff when we start to die <laughs> hmm and then he dips a chip into his open wound um <laughs> Come on, Don. Do they have like a funeral um, for for two IC? And they're like, you know, this is what God wanted. And Commandant's like, no, this was God didn't do this. This was like shitty politicians and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. And we were we followed Supreme Commandant because he was standing with us, but he no longer stands with us. For now on, I'm going independent. He says. Mm -hmm. He's ditching the label and he's uh, pocketing the profits, baby. He's like, we'll just take our own land and make our own country. And it's like, that's just not how this works. But okay. Like, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure at any point. A redneck joins them. <laughs> a, uh, a capital, a, Ju a January 6th capital person joins them. They said, yeah, 
I oh that, no, I'm sorry. I just read your message board. I agreed <laughs> everything until I showed up here. It's that episode of Band of Brothers with 101st Airborne just creates new free land in the middle of France and says, "We're just gonna stay put. <laughs> this is where we're gonna be." This is us. <laughs> stay put or K put. All right, so. The um the camp gets airstruck by helicopters. They're like sleeping out in the middle of nowhere now. They're not they don't have support and the UN is now against them. Yep. So freaking helicopters show up and they just start blowing up the trees. It bursts in the air, shrapnel everywhere. When those freaking medic, whoever that was, he's dead now. When those things went over the first two times and everybody hid, there's part of me that's like, I mean, I guess you're probably hiding because foliage and everything, but they're in sight and those helicopters see pretty good when they're that low. And part of me is like, are they just not firing? Are they just scouting? And then later we find out, like what you're saying, that they were probably being held off and all that. And now you see why they're so afraid of those helicopters. Huge difference from those little whispering bullets going by that come out of nowhere and a rocket attack from a helicopter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they just light the whole place up. Yeah. And the Goo says in voiceover, a lot of voiceover, which is probably why it reminds me also of Thin Red Line. Mm-hmm. Um wild animals with no place to be going you know they're just like soldiers they're they're ronin right um they just don't really have a purpose anymore but they they are still they're still in combat they're mode still being shot at by rich, rich assholes in helicopters and things <laughs> right exactly <laughs> um they're sustaining on crickets um he uh agu finds a couple crickets and he eats one and he gives one to strika um preacher gets promoted that's fun um that's you know he's been with us since the beginning and then they immediately after getting promoted they just like run into the front line again and shooting happens and they people start disappearing off into the uh toward the fighting and agu is like hey striker come on and striker is like not getting up he just doesn't seem like he's into it anymore and um and he's like come on come on you gotta you gotta come with me so we gotta all go and then um and then he goes to check on strika and strika shows him that um like underneath his arm he has like a shrapnel wound or or whatever just a big old puncture and so agu picks him up and puts him on his shoulder or not on his shoulders you know kind of gives him a piggyback ride and strika says um to agu he says finally speaks and he says agu how come when I needed you most, there was only one set of footprints? No. <laughs> and Agu <laughs> says to Stryka, um, obviously, um, Stryka dies. I was really and, bummed about um, it. I wanted him to be giving up. That's what I wanted. I wanted him to be giving up. When he was sitting there, I'm like, he's probably going to die. But for God's sakes, can this movie do something right and have a kid decide that this is not what they want to do and just quit and just, just leave? And instead, he's got to die and the quitting comes later. Um, Did you notice Stryka wearing a Santa mask during one of the montages of the battling that was going on, and then the Santa mask shows up again in the counselor's office at the end of the movie? Did you notice that? Oh, no, I didn't. I'm going to touch on that again, but before we leave Stryka under the pile of leaves, I just wanted to point out the mask, because it does, it comes back. That's fun. I just recently watched Polar Express with my in-laws, and so that kind of ties into that. Then. There you Interesting. go. There you go. Yeah. A, lot of those, a lot of those discarded toys are going to show up somewhere. <laughs> It has been months now, and they are, like, in a trench, and Preacher is firing a machine gun, as usual, and he's just firing a who-knows-who, just out into the distance, and he's like, fuck you, fuck you, and he says, fuck you, life is sad. 
they needs ammunition, which makes sense if you're yeah, and firing then he's, your machine gun like that. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and so he sends a goo to get more ammunition, and he walks through a big long shot, a wet nightmare trench. So scary. Um, I said, I said, um, tracking shots like that in trenches will always remind me of Paths of Glory. I believe Paths of Glory might be one of the first ones to do that because of the size of cameras back in the day. Oh, wow. Um, the trenches and paths of glory had to be widened beyond what they actually were in world war one to accommodate the whole dolly system and everything. When they go into so. the mine and hidden fortress, they're like up to their hips in that water. And it kind of made me think of the same like slop. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. It never seems fun. No, no, mm-hmm. no, I don't want to be and there. So that's what I want to see. You know, Aaron has a lot of things he wants to see in the movies. I want to see the one where the trench filled up with water, where there's one guy just splashing, just having a good time. He's got little boats. He's like pushing <laughs> around out there. Yeah. They made a little slip and slide down the hill. Just <laughs> I like, love this war. <laughs> you got to go back to a battalion HQ. Nice. And then it turns around. Cause it's just like <laughs> slippery as hell all the way down the mud. <laughs> Just sitting in an inner tube, just like just just scooting himself along, splashing himself over. Mm-hmm. That'd be really I would love it. Um anyway, this isn't that sort of movie, apparently. Um one fifty four twenty. This wasn't supposed to be this way. Um, I guess they had imagined it some other way. <laughs> so that's that's what there's like people out there and they're digging a bunch of stuff up and they seem to be toiling and um and so they're at a gold mine mm-hmm. and Agu is like looking at the at the commandant and the commandant is just like sitting there not doing anything. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to be done. Nobody has ammo. Right. And and none of them are actually miners, even though they're at this gold mine and they're digging. Right. And the preacher comes up and he's like, I'm going. This is fucking stupid this feels a little pointless and it just feels like we're just succumbing to misery here and um he's like you know we're soldiers we have no bullets and we are at a mine and we have no miners and so what is this for um the commandant is like says to him he's like where are you gonna go after all the fucking shit i made you do mm-hmm. You're going to get charged for war crimes. You can't go anywhere. Do you think your family is going to take you back after what you did, after macheteing a guy's head and running through a house and stomping a little girl to death and all this other stuff like that? Anybody will like, you know, they're going to think you're a freaking monster. Nobody's going to want to have anything to do with you. Um, it's the only so argument he has. It's it's late and it's petty, but it, it it's cool that at some point this movie is like the only power this guy has is this argument. It's like, any one character cannot say no because the aggregate sees that character saying no and decides that they're the outlier and kills them. But at the point that you get the aggregate or the critical mass, power just evaporates. It just totally evaporates. And all you have at that point is like, but, 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 but don't go. <laughs> That's all he's got. Yeah. Agu listens to this. He doesn't like it. He points his gun at the commandant and then Danny Dietz goes, do it. Do it. Do it. Um, one time headshots him in the movie. movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the seals, he points the gun at the, at the commandant and then the commandant falls down, but a goo hasn't fired and everybody's looking there. And then some seals have emerged from the <laughs> bushes and it turns out America has saved the children now. <laughs> and then Hell they yeah. get drone struck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah turns out the radios don't work a goo would take um, like five or lost. six shots trying to headshot him like like from point blank and miss and then the seal would take the shot from like 20 miles away and then uh, hell yeah okay fuck yeah okay. um just a few rewrites otherwise great movie 
when you're poor and hungry, you'll remember me, says the uh, says the commandant. And it's like, I guess I'm remembering you right now, because guess what I am? I'm poor and hungry. Oh, I'm like, I'm going to remember you because you have traumatized me. That's why I'm, I'm going to remember <laughs> you because you made me cleave a man's head like a melon. That's what I'm going to remember yeah. you for. <laughs> it's like, but it's funny to me. It's like when you're poor and hungry. Right. right. What am I? What are we doing? Yeah, you have described the status quo. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And you're right. We've remembered you and how you failed us and made us poor and hungry. So here we are. We all agree. <laughs> so they go walking off and the commandant's like, go walk off. Ah, you fools, whatever. And then he's like, come on, Agu. And he turns around and Agu is like, well, with the group. Yeah. And then he says, a two Agu. Yeah, and this is where I wrote, never been so happy to see a blue helmet in my life because mm-hmm. there's a version of this story where they don't encounter the UN and instead they encounter someone else and uh, they all end up in a big pile somewhere. Yeah, or they encounter some bad UN people. Right. And they get sexually assaulted somewhere. Yes. Um, Correct. So, yep. Thankfully, they surrender to good blue helmets. And one of the guys there, I'm not sure if you noticed, is the one that he sold the TV to. That's Yeah, they make that like, is that you? Is that you? Kind of look at each other. Yeah, and they kind of touch that one from the beginning again. Which again, makes the movie about like this childhood loss, this tragedy, this monster, you know, um, it, it just kind of rekindles that whole like argument. They should make a movie where Agu is in a cell and this guy's guarding him. And then Agu... Um, successfully radicalizes yeah, him to his I was, side. I was going to say, like, why aren't you in this cell with me? And at the end, the dude's like, it's a pretty good point, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Think of all the imagination TV we could have. Right. Um, Agu, um, after they get brought in, Agu is in a very nice school by the ocean. Yeah, and he's talking um, to a therapist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he gets a bed and a net. Very cool. That used to only be a commandant thing. Um, He gets to hang out with a teacher that's not his dad. Not fun. Um, And Agu is a little artist. I'll be dang. Ain't he a little Hieronymus Bosch, huh? (laughs) Um, He's like, he's very talented and he draws like very complicated stuff. Um. And then we see some of the kids aren't doing so well there. They are uh, burning furniture and the preacher is trying to get people to leave because he's like, they're poisoning us. Uh, We should be out there fighting for the cause or whatever. And I wrote, fuck that. And, and he leaves with another kid, but, um, but a goo and a, and somebody else stays behind. They, he doesn't want any more of it. He doesn't care about the cause right now because he has food and he has warmth or whatever. Um, anyway, he is getting therapy. He was talking to his teacher. She's looking him in the eyes. He says he doesn't like it when they look him in the eyes. Mm-hmm. And he says that they think that he doesn't speak because he's a child, but in fact, he's an old man. And um, and it's not that he doesn't have the words. It's that once he starts saying the words, they're not going to like what they, they, they hear when he describes what goes on. And that's where I get my read in here. Yeah. I saw, I seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. <laughs> he says, <laughs> it's this scene at the end is really great in the context of the article that I've been talking about throughout child soldier as a mercenary, where it talks about how, again, in the, the actual language of, of the interview of the actual child soldier, this is really powerful language where it's like, 
I see that you're trying to heal this wounded child or something, but I'm not a child anymore. I'm a man, and I've been to war, and I've seen war, and so you talking to me like I'm a child is just weird. Like, who are you talking to? And in the background, she has the Santa mask, and it, it goes back to Stryka. It was Stryka that had the Santa mask on, and it was Stryka who was like the only other vulnerable child with him who gets left under a pile of leaves right before we make it to this point. And like, like, what's he supposed to do? Be like, well, let's just start with this. You see that Santa mask there? Get, get that the fuck out of here. Like, that can't be here anymore. Like, you want me in a comfortable space? We have to understand that something like that is lurking in this person's mind. And it's like the the article itself is that like, yes, getting veterans to talk about their trauma is an important part of getting people to process things, but you cannot tell people to have conversations about traumatic things without consequence. And if you talk to a child as if they're a child when they've been through a traumatic event, you will traumatize them because that's not mm-hmm. nice. They don't want to. You might get shot. You might get shot as we learned on the bridge. I mean... <laughs> Like, don't tell him he belongs in kindergarten, that's for sure. But it's like, <laughs> Yeah, not after the shit he just saw. Here is this person talking to, quote, a vulnerable child, and here is a grown adult who has been to war. And, and like, if you put Dick Winters in that chair, they're, they're, they're trying to get him to live through the shit that he's been through or whatever, but not in this kind of lens. And, and the article says that that lens of vulnerable childhood is the problem. Yes, child soldiering is bad, but we will never understand child soldiering. By the way, only 40% of child soldiering happens in the African continent, the article says. The rest of it happens all over the rest of the world. Not even most child soldiers are in Africa. If we're going to understand this phenomenon, we cannot make it about Afro-pessimism, and we can't make it about exploited and vulnerable children unless we're willing to talk about the economic and settler colonial like legacies that created that exploitation. That's the real root of it, because like any other soldier in the world, they fight because they think it's what protects them they fight because it's been linked to masculinity through catholicism through western media through all sorts of cultural legacies that may not have anything to do with any of those things but just arrived at the same conclusion (laughs) you get it the movie has an ethnography written by a dude who actually interviewed child soldiers but who's not positioned among them Those words get turned into a tragedy. And as a result, this movie is both Afro-pessimistic and not Afro-pessimistic at the same time. And as a result, this movie kind of robs these people of their agency. It robs them of their actual existence in a lot of ways because it just turns them into these like lost children of Africa, so to speak. You get it? I wonder if it's still at, if, yeah, I wonder if what the problem is, you know, how, how when people start representing folks in um, marginalized groups in Hollywood, how it seems to go through phases, you know, where it's like, um, well, first it's you, you have the phase where the, the trans person is a horrible, creepy villain that's trying to fool you as opposed to like a human being. And then you're going to have like an, LGBT person who where we've improved to the point where now we only show them in a good light and we don't <laughs> dare to show anything else about them and now we're finally like barely getting to the point Cast by Brad Pitt where we can have <laughs> well right and we're now we're getting to the point where it's like we have stories where they're not afraid to have more balanced characters yeah. you know where you can have a villain who is who is gay but not a villain because they're gay you you know and 
And so maybe in these storytellings that we're doing with with Africa as a vague term, mm-hmm. you know, the we continent. went we went from a time um, where we're showing movies like I don't know people in fucking in big cauldrons and about to get or like the naked prey, a guy running from people hunting him or Zulu or something like that, where where they are enemies to be fought by noble white people. And now it's getting to a point where it's like, oh, these are these are still good people, but they're being brutalized by a war. And it's going to take a lot more of attempts at telling this story and analyzing what went right and wrong in these stories before you get a story where it's like the commandant actually makes a great point. Yeah. And that's how he can recruit a bunch of people or this kid actually, despite being traumatized at the same time was exhilarated by the violence and, and at times enjoyed it and later on maybe was ashamed by it. But at the time was a willing, happy participant in it. You've identified a neat spectrum that makes a good point, which is that you go from having no characters at all in the movie. They're just not in the movie because they don't exist. There's no such thing as trans people, according to Hollywood, to they're going to be in the movie, but they'll be the pervert or some horrible thing to they will. And so we call one omission. We call two monstrification or villainization or demonization, if you like. And then third, we call representation. Okay, so they're here, but they're they're like played by some Hollywood beefcake straight dude that has no place doing it. But or they're like the perfect Hollywood version of this person um, that looks and sounds and looks otherwise like all the straight people, but is in fact gay. Um, and we call that representation. And then the last step we call standpoint. And standpoint is one that is positional. Positional um, material is is critical about standpoint. That's the whole point of positionality is to say, where do I stand and where does that point me? And, and then what you get it, like what, what perspectives do we have? I'm suspicious of the improving and the trial and error, the linear improvement of your prior, because I feel like we tend to just replicate with better technology. I do think we become more aware. I think this movie in many ways, if I if I make a crass reduction, it's like, a guy from Harvard wrote a book about child soldiers and they turned it into an amazing movie. That might as well be the sixties. That might as well be the fifties. Like it's just way Netflixier and way you get it like richer. It's, it's not, you heard it here first. If you're an intellectual dork, right? maybe stay your lane. <laughs> I mean, well, no, if you're an intellectual dork, be critical. Dr. Aaron Paul D- yeah, Donaldson it, said it, it here. Himself. No, you didn't. If you're a critical dork, you're going to read <laughs> Soini Madison's book, critical ethnography, method, ethics, and performance. And you're going to realize you don't have to stay in your lane. You just got to be positional. I don't want a great big delivery truck coming where a compact car belongs. You see what I'm saying? That doesn't mean you got to stay in your lane. It means you got to see what you're driving. And if you're driving a delivery truck, then you can't go on the compact car lane. But if you're driving your sedan, you can go on the compact car lane. No big deal. It's like, be aware of your position. And and here's why I'm suspicious of it. And this is the point. Those stories exist. These stories have been told and are being told. They're just not positioned well when it comes to who gets to tell a story propped up by Netflix. If we had all of the actual pieces in place, they would not have the filmmaking capacities. They wouldn't have the the networking capacities, the production capacities. They wouldn't have any of that. And that is why we're always deeply suspicious of Hollywood's ability to do this because the same people that have all of our attention 
um, are so forever displaced from the positions of the stories they're going to try to tell and why it's so exciting to see things like phones give movie making technology to literally anyone because these stories do exist. We just have to find them and we just have to dig through the the places where they're being told and, and deal with movies that don't look like Disney because that shit's expensive. You got to sit through something that doesn't quite look like a Disney movie, but it's out there, I think. The movie finally ends with a goo um, swimming with wit. Yeah. Again, I'm, I, uh, Charles and I have apparently been totally captivated with The Thin Red Line because anytime I see a bunch of soldiers la- launch themselves into the waves at the end of a movie, I'm like, yep, yep, this is <laughs> makes me think of The Thin Red Line. Like, this is where I'm at. Um, yeah. Yep, and that's the end of it. That's how the movie finishes, thank God. Yeah, they do. They end um, up swimming in the waves. And we feel like the UN is probably making things better. And part of me, I'll admit this, there was a part of me that the white savior complex came up and I'm like, what, no placard? Like, who do I donate to? How do I make a difference? How do I make a change? That's all white savior bullshit. A huge part of positionality is knowing if you're an audience member walking out of this movie, having learned about this from this perspective, your desire to make a change is white savior nonsense. You're not well positioned to make a change if you didn't know any of the things we're talking about. But now that you've finished the episode and you know a lot of those things, there is a way that you can help. And that's by joining our Patreon. Yes, you can donate to the Real War Project (laughs) because we will end child all soldiering when we end we will end child soldiering when we end all soldiering there's a soldier in none of us you heard it here first give all that you can to podcasts that matter and make a difference you're well positioned to do that listener (laughs) three straight white men doing a podcast (laughs) very good hey all i'm saying is the listener is better positioned to make a difference in our lives than they are in the lives of child soldiers (laughs) and this is probably true true. Anywho. <laughs> so Aaron. Anywho. Of course there's probably well, some like general in like uh you know uh Oklahoma somewhere listening to this with a bunch of child soldiers in his KKK militia and he's like, "Well, I'm off the hook. I'll just donate to I know how to make a really good yeah, movie." Okay, now, what's actually. next, Charles? Let's do it before the 3 hour mark. For the next movie, you know, this batch what we're talking about, we have talked about um children in war and being indoctrinated into fighting war. And we have also talked about uh, maybe movies aren't gory enough and showing war as brutal as they should be. And there's movies that we've been avoiding watching like a come and see, you know? We'll have to watch that some other time because instead we're finishing this grouping up with 1984's Red Dawn, directed by John Milius. I was wondering if we were going to watch one of these. I've seen the more recent remake. This I have not seen the one from 1984. And I'm Oh really? Yeah, I'm super interested. Um Patrick Swayze mm. always has my attention. Um <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> not going to lie. Oh yeah. 1 hour and 54 minutes <laughs> unnecessary, but hey, we can do it. I believe in us. Um yeah, Patrick Swayze, Charlie Sheen, it's interesting because we watched The Bridge and then we watched uh, Beasts of No Nation and now we're here to Red Dawn and I just feel like it, the three posters together, the names together, like you just see U.S. essentialism here. <laughs> it's like The Bridge is about a bridge. Beasts of No Nation is a monstrified version of Afro-pessimism and Red Dawn like sounds like the beginning of... <laughs> the beginning i think uh, my 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 it's been a long time since i've seen this movie um although this is a guilty pleasure of mine 
um it it sucks and simultaneously totally rules Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um i think that that in comparison to all of the stuff that we said was wrong about beasts of no nation and it was problematic i think that when we're having the conversation not about um athro pessimism but about portrayals of children in war and the glorification of combat and and all of that i think this one's going to be a bit more um a bit more offensive yeah and that this is going to seem like a that we have a weird culture that indoctrinates people into wanting to pick up that gun and defending some shit that wasn't theirs to begin with yeah. the counterpoint to afro pessimism in this case i said is u.s exceptionalism um and yep it's gonna basically say what charles said so tune in next week so uh, guys i gotta go i need to uh hop in this convoy and help them repair this bridge okay uh have fun charles i gotta go i hear helicopters coming and i just want to go check it out bye guys i have an appointment with a dull machete to the face (laughs) that's about how i feel after three hours Podcast about the narrative and effective politics of war movies and their productions too. Charles Horgan and Aaron Donaldson bring you a brand new podcast, The Real War Project. Dip in and out of subjects with Lauren and Sarah's irreverent points of view with the hilarious podcast, Dippers. Catch up with the week's pop culture news as well as reviews of new movies and shows, not to mention the occasional interview with Carl, Brandon, and Biggs on Not Safe for Network. Wrestlers wrestle, but sometimes they make movies too. This podcast lets you know how they do. Listen to Eric and Connor in all three seasons of Movies with Wrestlers. One by one, Jeremiah and Biggs break down influential movies and some wretched ones too in the podcast you can't miss, A Cosmic Void.